Welcome everybody to the one year podcast versary, if that's even a word. Military Veterans Podcast has just turned one uh, in this month of October and the year of 2021. So thank you to everybody that's been involved from the guests that have been on to the friends and family that have shared on behalf of them and to anybody else that has listened and learnt and thought it was great to do so. Now, please, just to help celebrate this milestone, it would be amazing if you could jump onto Apple Podcast and give this a review with a five-star rating. would be amazing. So, yeah, please do that. That would really help the show uh, gain traction a little bit more and uh, get others to hear these stories and experiences. So, great year, what we've just done. Uh, we had 16 amazing episodes, and we start the second year with episode 17, Enjoy this, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Welcome to episode 17 of Military Veterans Podcast, where we talk to veterans to learn about their stories and experiences. And today, we're joined by Rachel Williamson. Hey, Rach. Hi. How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? I'm doing all right, thank you. Uh, took me a little while to set all the equipment up, but you, you were quite impressed with the setup, weren't you? I like to give you a challenge. You know, it's <laughs> I like it. Yeah, it's a yeah different atmosphere, but I like it. Yeah, I think you said earlier this would be what uh, your room would look like if the walls were painted black. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I'm going to do it, but uh, no, I like it. I like. All the layout and equipment. Impressive. Thank you. Thank you. And um, well, thank you for inviting me uh, and to being uh, a guest on the show. We've never crossed paths before, have we? So no, no. This is actually the first time we're meeting in person and, and it's been really cool to connect with you. Um, and the other few exciting things about this episode is this is marking the one year anniversary of the podcast. Yay! Congratulations. Thank you so much. We should have champagne and cake. We should, but we don't want to mess up the rug. We've got my Military Veterans Podcast rug. If you're watching it on YouTube, you can see it. So uh, Good work. Yeah. But yeah, we will have the cake later, no doubt. Of course, of course. (laughs) Um, And then the other exciting thing is, uh, do do I say it now? No, I'm going to say it in a bit after we've done the four questions. Okay. All right? And then I'll I'll share what I'm thinking. It'll make more sense in a bit. (laughs) Okay, so we'll do the four questions, um, get your answers, and then we'll dive into the, the deep part of, of your career. Sound good? Good. Fantastic. So the questions are, when did you join? What service and branch did you join? How long did you serve for? And what rank did you get to? So I joined in 2007 in the Royal Air Force, originally as a PTI, a physical training instructor, and then I retraded to a medic. I got to the rank of SAC and served 10 and a half years. Nice, nice. So SAC, for anybody that's uh, not aware of that rank? It is senior aircraftman slash woman. Okay. <laughs> and and what's that kind of equivalent to, let's say, to the army? Like a lance jack. Like a lance jack. Yeah, lance one corporal. before corporal. Brilliant stuff, brilliant stuff. Well, the thing I was just getting excited about is you are the first RAF, Royal Air Force person on the show. Yay! Doing it for the service. So you are. You're, you're, you're flying that flag. For, <laughs> more, for, cake. <laughs> more cake. More <laughs> cake. Uh, that's a really, really cool start to the show. Um, so let's get into to yourself. This is your episode. Uh, and let's start at the very beginning. So where was you born and where did you grow up? 
I was born in Chesterfield in Derbyshire and wasn't there for long. And then we moved to Lincolnshire, Spalding, and lived there pretty much most of my childhood. Okay, okay. And what was the childhood like? Was it uh, an enjoyable one? It was a bit chaotic. Chaotic? Yeah. I Because I was born ch- uh, premature, I had to get into sports early to sort of learn how to build on coordination and breathing. And so I was introduced to swimming. Okay. And okay. that pretty much was my entire childhood was swimming. I didn't really get into sort of academic side of school. It was just um, me and a pool and then having fun. I was just a hyperactive, sporty kid. Right. So you enjoyed the swimming aspect? Yeah, yeah. It was um, at the time, I think I just wanted to mess about and splash and pretend to look like you were drowning sometimes just to see if the lifeguards were awake. (laughs) And yeah, I think at the time it was just um, my mum wanted to make sure that I sort of was building in myself and I was stronger and if we ever went on holiday, I wouldn't drown in the sea. Okay. I think that was the main, you know, she wanted all her children to learn how to swim as well. Nice. So what, can you remember what age you started that? About seven. About seven. About six, seven, yeah. And did that grow into something big? Yeah, it was um, my swimming coach at the time told me, you know, I'm going like, obviously, in the baby pool, doing little whips all the time. And they were like, oh, she's actually got... She's picking this up really well. Do you want to put her into like the next sort of class going up? And that was when I started sort of swimming in the main 25 metre cable parts. And um, yeah, just enjoyed it from there and ended up joining my actual local swimming club and just training for fun, really. So, yeah. And what's that training like? Because I've swam myself. Uh, I wouldn't say I was any good. Uh, <laughs> I may, maybe I could blame the teachers. I'm not too sure. Okay. Um, but I always see the classes that go on and they do so many lengths. And I'm like, I'm struggling here with yeah. 10. <laughs> That's the downside about swimming. You have to do a lot of work for little improvement. Like it takes a lot of time and sort. But I was at the age where it was just fun and I made friends and some of those went to my school. And I think when I started, the lessons were probably about 45 minutes. And it really isn't much by the time you actually set up, warm up, do a little session, sprinting, playing with like inflatables or whatever if you're good. And um, and yeah, it was a good start. You know, it's all about fun and just making new friends. Okay. And did you continue with that or was there kind of like an end goal to it? I think when I started, there wasn't ever a goal. I just enjoyed it. I just met up with people every day. But as the years went by started to become a bit more serious I was eventually put into like higher and higher sort of groups within the actual club and eventually making like the main top team the main squad and uh, starting doing competitions at weekends okay and I just picked it up really easy I think because I had to learn to do that coordination and breathing because of health side of things it sort of made me more I don't know, pick it up a bit easier, maybe over time, because I had that head start when I was younger. But um, but my brother and sister, they never really got into sport. So this was like a new one for my parents. We were okay. like, what is a club and what do they do? Yeah. Where for me, I got free tops and I quite like free stash and <laughs> like anyone. And you were part of this amazing club with all these new friends and this new sport that I enjoyed. And so, yeah, I ended up doing it multiple times a day, quite a few hours. 
And it really got serious probably when I was, I reckon, about 13. I reached the nationals and that and that's the first sort of year you can actually reach it. As That's like the youngest age you can actually reach the nationals. And that's literally saying that you're in the top so many in the country wow. competing against everybody else. And I just thought, well, it's just a day out. I get to go in a hotel, you know, <laughs> let's have fun. I never really thought anything of it. But, um, but yeah, and it sort of just grew from there. And that's when I realised, could I be an Olympian? Okay. You know, I always had that, oh, it'd be, ama- it'd be amazing if I could. You know, I see all these guys on TV and there were older swimmers at the club at the time who were part of um, Team GB. And my coach eventually was one of the GB coaches. And that was sort of my lifestyle. That's how it sort of picked up from there. So does someone say that to you, uh, that may be a future goal? Have you thought yeah, about this? Yeah, um, the coach spoke to my mum and basically said, you know, if she put in the effort, this is what's possible. You know, she's got this sort of winning sort of, I don't know, personality and this sort of strong mindset to actually push it to the big leagues if I wanted it. And I think at the time I was just a annoying teenager, hated anything that involved effort. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, moaned and I started doing morning swimmings as well at that time. And... With that current club, I was only swimming with them till I was probably about 15, 16. And then I actually moved club to Northampton because my coach, who was a GB coach, was told, you need to go to a bigger club to sort of broaden your coaching ability. And so me and another swimmer joined him and we swam for Northampton after sporting. So yeah. So is that alongside education? Yeah, so yeah. I was still, I was at um, secondary school at the time in a lovely all-female secondary school that right. was okay. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, when it sort of got into the serious side, my actual daily routine was ridiculous looking back on it now. I would, um, my mum would wake me up at half past three in the morning. We would, she would drive me an hour and a half to Northampton to then do a two and a half hour session in the morning then drive back an hour and a half, get to school, potentially late because of traffic, yeah. and do a whole day of school. And then at that time, I had permission to leave an hour early to beat the traffic. And whatever lesson I missed for the last of each day, I would catch up eventually through lunchtime or in the car some right. way or another. And uh, yeah, drive back an hour and a half at like 3, 4 p.m., do another two and a half hours, then drive back an hour and a half. And I would be home by like 10 and then back up at half three the next day. And I think at the time I was probably doing um, morning and evening on a Monday, same on a Tuesday. Wednesday I would have off, which is the best day that I liked because it just meant <laughs> I could actually see my family. Yeah. And then again on Thursday morning and after school, Friday the same, and then Saturday morning, and I would get the Sunday off. And I did that for about a good few years, four or five years. And... Yeah, looking back, I don't know how I did it. I don't know how my parents did it because I obviously hated being a morning person. It was just a lot of travelling. I have got uh, my dad and brother and sister I would never see. Probably Wednesdays and Sundays was when I actually saw my family. Yeah. And that was my entire secondary school life. That's sort of how it always went. But 
the bonus of all of that, all the effort that went in, I reached the nationals multiple times. Okay. And eventually the highest I got to was the final of the Commonwealth Trials wow. in 2005 with a aim of getting to the 2006 Commonwealth Trials and then the 2008 Beijing Olympics. Okay. And I was reaching the finals and I thought, this is it. If I get in those top two places, I could actually make the Team GB because they don't like accept everyone that's a finalist. And then um, go from there, you know, try and work my way up to this Olympic dream. But that one, I was basically in two races for that final and it all went perfectly to plan. I think I was winning after the first length. I thought, oh, this is great. I can still see it. But when I touched, I was like fifth. And I was like, how? I was so far in front. But it's just one of those. Everyone swims races in different ways, different tactics. That when we all touched, it could be a hundredth of a second. And that could be you on a team or off a team. And that was it. I decided to give up. Not going to bother anymore. Because Olympics are only every four years. I was already 17 at the time. Okay. And to actually keep that pace up at that age, at the top of my field for another few years, would be difficult. It would be a lot of... Um, lifestyle changes because at the time I was GCSE time so coming to the end of school yeah so I had to make that decision whether I wanted to actually commit and be like a master swimmer or think of a career yeah yeah and that was yeah where I got to sounds like yeah like a lot of effort and a lot of time to, yeah to do that and and was that swimming freestyle is that everything everything <laughs> wow I was one of those annoying kids that did just all the strokes. Fly, butterfly was probably one of my main, hence my shoulders. Okay. And yeah, butterfly and freestyle. But I did like um, individual medleys, which is like a length of each stroke. Okay, yeah. And sort of middle distance, so 200s, 400s, which were sort of my main events. So I wanted to be a sprinter because they just did one length and that was then done for the day. <laughs> but I'm not tall enough or have, you know, six foot long arms to reach the end. Right. So, um, yeah, that's sort of how it, my swimming career started and stopped. And okay. I thought, let's not do that anymore. Sounds like you learned a lot from it, though. Um, a lot of effort, but you learned a lot yeah. whilst doing it. I sort of, I sort of didn't realise at the time. Like, I remember having a go at my parents all the time, just saying, um, you know, that yes, I really do want to do this sport. I will put the effort in. But if I had a bad day at school or if I had a bad morning session... It would affect everything that everyone did for the rest of the day. My mum would be like, oh, I've just driven three hours a day. You've just done five hours and you've got nothing out of it. That's a day wasted, all that fuel. And I thought, oh, but I really do want to do it. But yeah, it just takes time. You just have to be patient. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. And then what does it look like after that? So you, you've decided to hang up your, let's call it Olympic dream. Yeah. Um, what, what, what are the next steps after that look like? So at the time I finished secondary school and it never really occurred to me to sort of think, what do I want to do as a job or where do I go after? Do I go to uni or do A-levels or college? And at the time, my sister just finished college and she was joining the Royal Navy. Okay. And we're not from a military family at all. My parents weren't military or anything. So she was the first to yeah, look she into was. it? bit of a shock to my parents I think at the time 
And um, and I just thought it was like a glorified P&O ferry, you know. Yeah. I thought, oh, you know, <laughs> get me some duty free. And yeah, I saw what she did and I thought, I'm going to join college. And I did public services, which I think now it's called pre-uniformed services. So it's basically learning about the emergency services, the armed forces, just a complete mixture. And I thought, well, that gives me two years and then I could still decide what I want to do. But I just had no idea. I only ever had, I want to be a swimmer, but it just never occurred to me that if that doesn't happen, what do you do? Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, I joined college. I did uh, public services, which I enjoyed. And what do you do in that? Um, what do you learn when you're there? It's it's basically a mixture. So you would have lessons about a prison service, lessons about the armed forces. Um, I remember we one of our lecturers was actually a policeman and typical, his name was Bob. So <laughs> Bobby to Bob. And, um, and yeah, and he would tell us about it, uh, the police service and all of that. And I thought, oh, well, that all sounds great. You know, maybe I'll look into one of those. And I remember thinking I could do prison service. You know, I've got the shoulders of a swimmer. Maybe they'd be scared of me. And, and we had to also be a, it was an army cadet was part of it so you had no choice you sort of had to be a cadet right during it where I had no experience of cadet world I just thought it was all right <laughs> you know I just never really saw it as something to go for but obviously part of this course you had to have one day in um, army greens and pretend to be in the military and learn a few skills and I just remember I thought oh I'm sure we have day trips out that's all I ever wanted was to travel places and um, and I was still sporty. I still, um, I mean, even though I sort of quit swimming, I did the odd football session. And typically I was the only female in my class. So we used to do a lot of um, prison rules football where you just do whatever you want as long as you've got the ball, you know. Right. But I just probably use that to my advantage to just jump on them <laughs> and just say, you know, ball's mine. But, yeah, and then it sort of, it was probably the last year for all maybe I'll look into the military because my sister was in the Navy and I thought maybe I'll just join her. But at the time when I was looking at trades, I heard about the physical training instructor and the PTI thinking I'm pretty sporty. I'm fit, but I'm not like mega, mega fit. But I thought, you know, they teach you, you can learn it. And yeah, I decided it was then I was going to join the Royal Air Force only because of the PTI trade. Okay. Because you can join straight up as one, where the Navy and the Army have to be another trade first, and the PTI is your second role. Got it. And so that was the only reason why I joined the RAF in the end, So I thought, I want to be a PTI. And you'd never seen or heard really much of the Air Force before? <laughs> Nothing at all. Wow. <laughs> I think in the back of my mind, I just thought, I'm sure my mum probably told me, saying, worst case, you just come out. You know, if you don't like it, you just come home. And I thought, actually, that's quite a good sort of logic to have. Whatever you do in life, it doesn't matter if you don't enjoy it. You can just stop what you're doing, have a break and find something else. That's fair. That's fair. And that was, yeah, I just thought, I'll just do that then. Go with the flow. So you signed up and you headed off for, is it basic training in the Air Force? Now, bearing in mind, I've <laughs> never had an RAF person on here before. Unfortunately, so. the hotels were full. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, so I joined up in, it was July 2007, so straight away from college, no break. 
and it was at RAF Holton, which is Buckinghamshire. And, yeah, I thought it was great. I think in my mind I just thought it was like a, almost like a holiday camp, but military. Really odd way of putting it, but because I never really had that overall dream of being in the military, I just thought I'd give it a go. It never really sort of dawned on me that, you know, this is what the rest of your life will be like in this military atmosphere. So I remember just enjoying it. I thought I'm quite used to eating my food really fast. So that worked when you were given like two minutes to eat your meals and get back on parade. Um, never ironed before, so that was always new. And um, I made new friends. And I think the hardest part was that I realised you had to run. <laughs> right. And I don't run. You'll never see me running <laughs> unless there's a buffet opened or something. <laughs> but... Um, that was probably the hardest part. And even though I was joining up as a physical training instructor, you yeah. probably would have thought I should have done more running. But, yeah, no, I didn't. So uh, I definitely found the actual running aspect of the sort of the physical training side of it. You know, I was happy with circuits. It's all indoor and cosy. But, um, yeah, running outside, I'll be out of breath in five minutes. <laughs> Now, with uh, basic, is it called basic training for yeah. everything? So yeah, basic training. Do you do weapons and things like that? Of course we do. I mean, you, you, you know, you're normally <laughs> in a hotel. so uh. Yeah, yeah. It's it's quite rare, but we do touch them. And, um, but you picked that up okay, considering you don't have a military background? Yeah, I think because family? I had um, the coordination built up from when I was younger and swimming, I naturally found shooting quite, I was quite good at it. You know, I had quite a good aim. Okay. And... Normally, if someone tells me to do something, I'm pretty good. I just do it. I don't really question it. And I just thought, oh, you know, I've fired a big gun today. And I'd call my <laughs> mum up and say, oh, I've shot a with a gun, you know, <laughs> not knowing any of the terminology. But, um, but yeah, I think I thought at the time I was pretty badass. I was thought, yeah, let, let's do this, good. you know. And how long is basic? Can you remember that for the RAF? I think it was nine weeks. Nine weeks, okay. Where I know nowadays they do like a... Is it two-week taster or one-week taster or something to make sure you, um, like, get your boots squared? What is it when you... Um, you like an to, induction type thing? Yeah, or? almost like an induction now. Okay. We have to do, like, their fitness test early to make sure they are suitable. Yeah. Where when I joined, we had to do a mile and a half on a treadmill. Oh, right. <laughs> and with treadmills, you can pretty much... I didn't cheat, but you can. And you can <laughs> you talk, know others that may have done. You <laughs> can bounce it, you know, and make it go fast and hold yourself up type thing. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, nowadays I'm sure it's still nine, but there's like a little extra induction. They make sure you are ready for it and, uh, you know, That's you get cool. your kit early to make sure it fits or something like that. Yeah, yeah. 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 <clears throat> and then uh, you wanted to be a PTI. So whilst in basic... Is, it that, is that when they're preparing you for your trade, I guess? Yes. So um, after basic training, you then have your graduation and go straight to whatever station it is, whatever base it is to do your trade training. Oh, okay. So it's not at the same place. So it's like phase two, what we'd call yeah. it in the military or it, in the army, sorry. It is phase two. <laughs> but yeah, trade training, I think, was trade the training. lingo. Okay. And so I went to, um, it's now called REF Cosford uh, over West Midlands, that way. And um, and that's where I started my physical training instructor training, which that was when it really was difficult. Okay. I realised I'm not fit. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely needed to know how to run. 
But um, I thought at the end of the day, they're teaching me how to do it. So I just trusted the system and just carried on with it. And it was great. You know, you got, um, you know, more kit, <laughs> more stash. But, um, but no, the hardest part was, um, this might sound silly, but shouting. I'm not very good at shouting, I found out. I squeal. <laughs> and, and, and it was embarrassing. I didn't realise that I, had, I could project my voice very well. And I had to sort of, I remember being in a sports hall with a um, course instructor shouting across this empty hall. And you'd do all like, these different sayings. Um, I think it's like, with a jump, feet together, place. And with a jump, feet a stride, place. Because you have to like jump into positions. And um, yeah, I just remember shouting it over and over and over again, learning that I had to go deeper to go louder. And oh, it's just embarrassing. Very interesting. Well, one that you got taught how to shout or project voice. That's, that's quite interesting to hear. I wonder if they do that in the army. Um, but also how you, how you use different terminology to us because we definitely don't use that terminology in the army. I think it's, uh. it's if you ended up getting based in an instructor, like a training, oh, how do I put it, like, um, like phase one or phase two PTI okay. where you have to actually um, instruct the new Recruits. Sort of recruits coming yeah. through, and that's what you would use. Where if you were on a base with just um, like the general population of the military, you wouldn't because okay. it's not an actual formal class. Right. Where in training and sort of recruitment side, you would. Okay. So okay. Um, yeah, you don't hear it very often unless you're going back to teach uh, basic training. I just remember the army PTI saying, "In position, ready, exercise, begin," and that was it. What's it just... an exercise? <laughs> <laughs> See, different worlds. We different don't. worlds. We don't. But, um, but yeah, no, PTI, it was good. It was, um, I think the course was about eight months, roughly. Oh, wow, okay. So it was quite long. Yeah. Because um, once you've done it, you go straight away into a corporal rank because you have to be in that sort of, inst- you're in teaching, you're instructing, so you sort of skip a few ranks. And, um, and yeah, it was, I think I enjoyed it as best as I could. But it was hard. I couldn't run. I was rubbish at shouting, but I enjoyed playing sport. And I think that's when I found out that, yeah, I'm, I'm a sportsman, not a fitness person. Okay. So I enjoyed sort of the fun side of sport rather than the, let's shout at someone and tell them to do a press-up. But, um, but yeah, I think I, I sort of grew as a person during that time. I sort of realised actually this is the job I chose. And do my best and hopefully I'll pick it up as I go along. And you did, did the full eight months there? I didn't because I like to mix things up. I um, I did, I was actually on two different courses. So I did the first course and I I think I, was, I, wasn't, I was, wasn't so bad, but I was quite bad. They said I needed to sort of repeat a little phase. Okay. And um, it was mainly the... You had to sort of teach so many warm-ups and then teach so many warm-ups with main lesson. I mean, you repeat it for the full warm-up, main lesson, cool-down. You have to sort of get ticks, and I sort of struggled in that area of actually teaching a class rather than I can show them and tell them what I need to do. But because I've never taught anything and all of the guys that were in my sort of class at the time, they were all like, they've been to uni, they've got sports science degrees. And as me, I'm like, well... I've swam. (laughs) I did a bit of college. I sort of had no sort of experience in it. So I found it a bit more tough. 
So I um, did five months, then I repeated a couple of sections with the next class coming along. And then unfortunately, I got to the exact same part five months and I became ill. And so what I, originally it was just tonsillitis, you know, absolutely nothing. But um, it didn't leave and it ended up affecting my heart. And it ended up with like a heart infection. And so I lost all like energy, um, motivation to do anything. And that's when they said, oh, well, we need to downgrade you. And you're unfit for actually doing this part of training. You need to sort of recover, have a rest on a training development flight and um, come back at a later stage when you're fit and ready to do it. And at the time I thought, yeah, that's probably best, you know. I really didn't feel like myself at all. And it was during that time where I thought, actually, maybe PTI is not for me. Why am I doing this when actually I realised you can do sport and you don't have to be a PTI to do it. And that's when it dawned on me that actually let's look at other trades that I might have an interest in. And at the time, because I was ill, I spent a lot of time in a med centre. Right. You see where this is going. Yeah, yeah. And I thought, well, actually, why don't I be a medic? <laughs> <laughs> I've been in the med centre, you know, I've been a patient. I've seen what they do. You know, I can take a pulse, I'm sure. There's one somewhere on everyone. And um, and that was it. I thought, let's uh, let's try and be a medic. And then I can just do sport as a side part, you know, and still enjoy it. I don't have to shout or not be fully confident in taking a class and shouting when, and yeah, that's sort of how it ended up being. So because I was ill, I thought, let's have this different journey and try a different trade. And then what does that look like? Did you get sent to another yeah. REF station? <laughs> uh, I was working my way around a few stations, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I ended up going to Keo Barracks, an army place, complete shocker. So different. Bit different. <laughs> really different. I learned the word tab. Oh, yeah. And yeah. I was like, what on earth is one of these? You know, it's not a cigarette, is it? And, do, you um, want, do you want to explain that for anybody that uh, <laughs> it might I'm, be listening abroad? I'm sure it stands for something. Um, so tabbing is when you sort of do like a fast walk and you run bits, walk bits with like a heavy bergen, like a rucksack on your back. And it's called tabbing. But I'm sure tab stands for something. Yeah, I don't know. Is it like tactical? Tactical? Oh, no. It's going to annoy me, this. But what I did find out is the Americans call it rucking. Rucking? Yeah, because I had a conversation with somebody and I was like, oh, yeah, when you go on tabs, and they're like, what's a tab? So, yeah, hey. that's a bit of information there. So, yeah, Americans, as far as I'm aware, might not be all the services. Rucking. Call it rucking. I don't know, I don't know if I prefer but I don't <laughs> as REF no probably don't like it but um but yes yeah, so I went to Keogh Barracks and that's where medical training is and I remember going these are all fresh recruits I'm like a couple of years older now because I've you know been through a different training part and I've done a few bits twice I've got a little bit more military life experience behind me and um and they all look you know fresh faced out of basic training and I just thought, oh, wow, you know, let's go with the flow, make some new friends and see what medic's all about. And I learned all about ABC <laughs> and airway breathing circulation. Oh, thank you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and CPR and all these things that actually never dawned on me, but I didn't even know it was common sense. Like I had no idea. I just thought, oh, let's try something new where all these fresh recruits were coming in wanting to be a medic and it was their lifelong dream. 
where I almost felt like a fraud saying, yeah, I didn't want to be a medic. It was my second trade. I thought I'd give it a go. But as my mum always said, try it. You can always leave. And yet at this point, I'm like three years into my service, been to multiple stations on a different trade. And I haven't left, so I must be enjoying it somewhere. And I sort of trusted that instinct. And yeah. How come you came to an army barracks, though? Is that, is that what they do? They... they just ran the medical training. It was just at an army barracks. So okay. it was um, tri-service training. Oh, it's tri-service. Yeah. Ah, got Sorry. It, got it. So PTI, that was single service. Where medic, it was a mixture between army, navy and air force. Oh, interesting. So that was the first time I learned about their ways of service as well and the different uniforms. Yeah. And when I say number ones, I mean like my best military dress, where for the army it's your number twos. And navy's different. <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah, yeah, and that just opened me up to all the different services. And I was like, wow, that is really quite interesting. And yeah. We do have number ones if you're in certain... Oh, uh, do you? Like Royal Engineers, we have number ones, but we don't really wear them, only for special occasions. Okay. Typically, it's number twos, number two dress. Yeah, I know, um, I know you're number two. You have that weird jumper, don't you? Uh, Is it a green jumper when you put a belt outside of a jumper? Well, the, the engineers never did that, not yeah, when I was in. I never really got that. But I know that... Uh, <laughs> I think I was on the camp one time with... Oh, we had a boxing tournament. And we had the green jackets come over. I'm pretty sure they they wore it like that. Yeah, um, it's different ways of different yeah, things. It's more some of them it's are traditional, uh, I think. So yeah, no, we were literally um, our number ones our main dress, and then our working dress, which is like our blue um, shirts and trousers or skirts with our lovely handbags and heels that we do get issued. You have handbags. We have issued handbag and oh issued God. high heels. Really. Really. Well, okay. <laughs> Genuine. So you, your working dress, you get different sort of versions and you can mix and match however you like. So for the RAF, we have like a long sleeve shirt for the winter or if you're cold. Short sleeve. If you wear long sleeve, you have to wear a tie. Short sleeve, you don't have to. But then the women also get blouses. So it's like a flat collar. Okay. And then you can choose between trousers or skirt. And if you obviously wear a skirt, you have to wear tights. And then depending whether you're wearing sort of skirt or trousers, you can wear sort of flat-bottomed shoes, which I think most wear because it's just everyday shoes, or you get high heels. And you can choose these when <laughs> yeah. you want to wear them? Yeah, once you're, in, once you're obviously fully trained and you're yeah. on a base, yeah, you can wear whichever you fancy. Really? Any time of the year? Yeah. You can, really? So you can wear summer wear in the winter, winter wear in the summer. So hang on, there's going to be like an RAF station and you'd have mixed... Essentially mixed dress, yeah. so where some are wearing certain Yeah, parts as long as you uniform. wear the right parts with the right bits, you know. Really? So for me, I wore my summer blouse and trousers with my flat um, shoes all year round. Blimey, okay. Because we have like one one uniform and it's uh, it's the sleeves up Green. or down. <laughs> um, yeah, no, we have, um, yeah, so I did blouse, blouse, trousers and flat shoes. Mm, okay. Heels and handbag isn't really for me. Yeah, wh wh when would you use the handbag? Quite a few do, just an everyday job to put stuff in. <laughs> don't you carry like a rucksack or a backpack? Yeah, you get rucksack as well. You do? Yeah. But if you don't have a lot of stuff to take, you can just take a handbag. <laughs> so we get a black um, handbag with a long strap or you can shorten it if you want. Wow. And you okay. can choose between heels or flat shoes. Such a different world. If I had them here, I would show you. <laughs> but unfortunately, no. 
Oh, that's crazy. <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah. Okay. Okay. If it was me, that handbag would be full of food or snacks or something. <laughs> or go to bag of wine or something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you finish your training as a medic. And I mean, during that training phase, um, how long was that? Did you, did you um, do that for? I think it is six months. Yeah. I believe. Okay. And um and that was great. You know, you did um you sort of trained all together, all your different services and um and then you get to like the last month or two and that's when you separate into your individual service. Right, right. Because your job is slightly different. So army will be more combat medic and they'll do more like in the field type treatment. RVF will learn more about paperwork and admin side and the Navy will do more probably more mini surgery type stuff as well because when they're on a ship they could be the only medical person there so they had to learn sort of extra stuff yeah, that yeah. wouldn't necessarily be what the RAF and army need to know about so we sort of learned about our single traded medic training yeah and go from there so yeah yeah really interesting and and then from from there um you go to your would that technically be your first is it station yeah. is station yeah in the station RAF, isn't it? yeah okay. um and, and where was that so I was posted to RVF Waddington, which is near Lincoln. Okay. And great place. I absolutely loved it there. They always say your first um, station or first base is your best one. And it's true. I absolutely loved it. I thought it was great. And how long was you there for in, in total? I was there for about four years in four total. Years. Okay. Yeah. And in that four-year period, uh, what happened? Did you deploy did you do sports what, what happened where do you want to start I did probably everything <laughs> <laughs> so I got in 2010 and um at the start I remember obviously you're this nervous person you technically know a trade and I actually finished training for a trade for the first time third time lucky and um and yeah I remember having a meeting with my warrant officer and he would straight away say, right, I've got a PowerPoint for you. And I'm like, What's it? why am I seeing a PowerPoint? And then I found out later, it's what he does to all of them, just to scare us all. <laughs> and you'll be like, oh, so how are you going to find out about this treatment? And he'll try and like put you on a spot. And what he wants you to say is, I don't know, but I'll go and find that information. But technically, but at the time, everyone just goes, oh, I don't know, I don't know. And he's just trying to judge your character. But luckily, I got on with him quite well. So... um but no, it was a great time. I, um, in those four years, I was introduced to sport. So I remember telling someone that, yes, I like sport, but I don't know if I'll get into it again. You know, I quit. This is not for me. And, uh, and they were like, oh, what's your history? And I said, oh, well, I swam. You know, I did a bit, little paddle. You know, I know how to do it. And... They just said, oh, well, we have got a swimming club on site and there's a swimming pool on site as well. And I was like, well, you know, come along, see what I can do. Plan it right down. <laughs> well, I sort of either didn't want to show off or sort of embarrassed them of what standard I've reached because I don't know many people that sort of got to where I got to and um, especially in the military. And, yeah, I sort of went along and sort of went slowish and then sort of picked up speed quite quickly because you get a bit carried away and that's when they said oh we we've got an RAF team you should come and join us for a training session and I was like yeah all right then 
what what do you get? What happens? What freebie? And they tell me all about the free kit. <laughs> so I'm like, sold. Let's go along. And it was tough because I, all I kept doing was comparing to where what I used to be and what my old times were. Because I knew every time for every race, all my PBs off the top of my head because they were drilled into me. And my dad had like an awesome spreadsheet when I was younger, so I'd get all the stats. And yet I remember doing my first race for the RAF and I thought, that is really slow. But I did put in all my effort. But I just kept comparing myself. But I never told anybody during that time what my swimming history was. Okay. I just told them that I swam for Northampton. This was who my coach was. And that was it, you know, because I just didn't, I don't know, I think I was afraid to accept my achievement, I guess, in a weird way. And just thought for once, don't judge me on what I used to be. Just let me do what I can do now. But that's when I realised I was really unfit, swimming unfit, because you sort of lose it unless you do it nine times a week. You know, it's mm. not quite the same. And, um, and yeah, so during that time I got into swimming, I ended up getting to the inter-services, which is the highest level you can go in the service. So you actually competing for the RAF against the Army, Navy as a group competition and winning medals. And I was like, wow, I still got it. This is great. <laughs> great feeling. Um, more kit. More kit. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and yeah, it was great. And then I got to a phase where I was like, I think the issue is chlorine. As weird as it is, the smell of chlorine reminded me of my past. And... I couldn't help but compare myself and I knew I wasn't as good as I was but I wanted to be and I kept saying but if I did my old timings I would have won that race mm. when actually years have gone past I haven't trained I don't have that mindset of you know wanting to be an Olympian just stop it and have fun and I sort of forgot to have fun with sport I put so much pressure on myself to perform because my whole childhood was all about performance and stats and winning and yeah, it's at the time I thought, mm. and that's when I decided to uh, stop swimming again. Okay. But then I was introduced to another sport. <laughs> okay, what was that? By one of the doctors that I worked with, because she kept turning up to work with bruises. And I was a little worried. I was like, you know, he'd been beaten up. And she um, introduced me to rugby. Okay. So she was like, you know, you've got shoulders of a swimmer. You'd be great for tackling. And little did I know, I've um, always been a fan of uh, Leicester Tigers because my dad's from Leicester and I've always followed that rugby team. But I never thought that I could play it. It just never occurred to me. But no, turns out I love it and I love tackling. <laughs> and if I go for it, it's most likely going to hurt them more than it's going to hurt me. <laughs> and so I thought, this is great. I've got this whole new lease of life. I can't compare myself. I have nothing to go against. And I've got more kit. <laughs> and so I thought, let's give rugby a go. And this is all while I was at Waddington and I played for the local team, Lincoln Ladies. And um, yeah, found out I absolutely loved it. And I've got this sort of body shape to be a really good prop. So um, anyone that doesn't know rugby, it's basically the front of the scrum that um, you put your head between theirs. You sort of fight for the ball underneath with your legs. And so I was the uh, front left person, which is a loose head prop. And... Yeah, turns out there's an RVF team. <laughs> so um, my coach for Lincoln Ladies was actually the 
sort of the staff member at my local AFCO, which is the careers office where I joined up. He was my sort of person that did all my forms and put me through. And he was now my rugby coach. And I didn't realise it was the same guy, but he recognised me straight away. Yeah. And it just really is a small world. And he's like, oh, you know, it's an RAF team. He was RAF. Didn't know this. I just turned up training one day with his doctor that I worked with. And he said, yeah, it's an RAF team. Why don't you go along to um, Cranwell, another base, and there's like a training weekend. Just see if you like it. So I went to Cranwell. I thought, oh, this is nice. You know, nice little station here. And um, tried rugby, tried tackling, learned how to pass a ball, found out my coordination is still just as good because I've had it built into me. And, uh, yeah, I got onto the REF team just from that training weekend. And then my second match for the REF was the inter-services against the Navy. Oh, really? And I was like, this is big. Like, this is actually quite I didn't realize at the time how big inter-service rugby was apart from the army navy at Twickenham every year yeah but this was the RVF navy and then the RVF army and my second and third match as a prop which is can be quite dangerous if you don't know what you're doing I didn't I just thought I'd do my best shot and I can walk away if I don't like it <laughs> and yeah I straight away got into inter-services as a prop and next minute I'm doing rugby for three years going on tour to South Africa. Really? And, yeah, absolutely loving it. So that that big game, how, how did it go? Can you remember? Yeah, we lost. You lost? <laughs> but did you do okay? You yeah. Know, such a big I think game. I thought, oh, my neck's a bit aching because I've never really sort of used those muscles before. It was really odd. But until you realise there's like a big after party and, you know, it's it's actually quite a big event, it was just the adrenaline. I just absolutely loved it. That's good. And, um, yeah, that was my new sort of passion in life, my new sport. And I could just – and this was all during my first posting. You know, I was still a baby in the military. I've only been for in for, like, four years at a time and only just learning my job properly. And yet I'm doing a – having a great time with sports at the time. Yeah. So, um, yeah, crazy. And then you went and toured yep, South Africa? Yeah, so I went to – yeah, did a mil- uh, rugby tour to South Africa – what, is that the RAF team? Yeah, okay. yeah. So, um, yeah, I don't remember much. There was might have been a few uh, beverages involved. Oh, of course, yeah. And um, <laughs> But we did play rugby games because it has to be an official tour, so you've got to play a game. And lucky for us, one of the team had their own vineyard. So uh, Who were you playing against then? It was like local uni. and one of the, It was a team in Pretoria near Cape Town, I believe. And then another one... Somewhere else. I really don't remember. But I think one of them was like a local university and another one was maybe another school, another female regional team or something. Okay. And um, and they were really good. We won both of them. Um, but it was a great sort of atmosphere. And I've never been there before, so it was great to sort of travel somewhere new and sort of represent your service and your country. Yeah. You know, it was a great time. And no doubt you learned stuff from that, you know, traveling, uh, working with the yeah. team. I've never flown on my own before. Mm. You know, I've always, prior to that, it was just holidays with my parents and my family. So I was like, oh, let's just follow the person in front and hope I get on the right plane. 
And um, but as RAF, you know, there's hotels involved, and we get used to it very quickly. Yeah, late flights. Uh... It's, um, <laughs> very nice. Yeah, all on time. <laughs> but no, it was a great tour. Great tour. Yeah. So what what does the rest of that four year first station look like? Uh, is it is it just rugby, or did you go? Did you have to go and do exercises like we do in the army? I don't know. Not really. Not really. Okay. <laughs> I remember. Um, well, we didn't realise it was an exercise at the time. Bear with me. <laughs> so me and another medic get told, oh, let's, um, we need two medics just to um, do a little practice training session. And we got all the fake medic gear. And we were like, oh, yeah, we'll pretend to patch you up just so they could do whatever skill they were doing. And then little did we know, we're getting on a coach. And we're like, why are we getting on a coach? We're supposed to be just there as a practice medic for a practice session with these other guys and yeah we found out it was a real life exercise but we went on a coach with practice medical kit that you couldn't use and luckily nobody got injured or hurt because they were outside in a field practicing firing positions or something and me and this other medic were just sat on a coach you know just chilling out in case someone needed us <laughs> but we did not even realize even our um the management in the med centre, none of them were told if this was real, that we had to actually take proper gear. We thought it was an on-base practice, you know, get your plastic gear out and pretend, you know. And, yeah, that was a shock. But, no, exercises, not really, unless um, we had to... I think we did, like, one every every year just before the air show. So Wellington is, was also famous for the Wellington air show, okay. where they um, get, like, all the aircraft and all the public come onto station and actually see what the station does and all about the REF and the careers and everything. And we'd always have a practice before that, just uh, check that we can do MAS casualty stuff. And um, what, What's that MAS casualties for? So it's like um, when you have a major event. So we practice to say there's an aircraft that's crashed. What do you do? So we have to sort of practice our skills and learn how to respond with like radio talk and triaging so you sort of separate the patients up to whether they need um, life-threatening injuries and they need treatment straight away or whether they're walking wounded and then everyone in between. And so we would always have to practice those sort of scenarios. And luckily, every time I was on sort of duty medic, so you'd have to do duties as well. So um, because the airfield was active 24 hours a day, there has to be someone on duty at all times to be ready to assist for any flights that are happening or any emergency on the station. And I almost had a sort of a plane crash at the time. But I wouldn't say lucky for me. They crashed outside of the boundary. So it wasn't actually our responsibility. It was the um, emergency services outside the local hospital and local ambulances. But I remember being in that ambulance on the airfield getting told there's an aircraft coming down, but we don't know where the plane is or where they're going to crash. And I was just like, oh, this is happening. We've practised for ages and yet we've never touched wood, had a crash. And, yeah, I was just like, what do I do? What do I do? I do know what I need to do, but you second-guess everything that yeah. you've been taught. And, yeah, couldn't even see the aircraft, but I heard on the radio that they actually did a sort of crash landing, safe landing and such, and um, they were all okay. 
and the emergency services outside the station attended and they were all fine. But I remember that being probably one of the most panicky sort of moments. I was like, I've got to call someone. This is a Saturday. On a weekend, I'm the only one here, only medical station. And I was in that position of ready to sort everything out. And, yeah, crazy at the time. <laughs> and I think, you know, am I up for the job? But, you you know, luckily adrenaline kicks in, you sort of do what your job is. But, yeah, you just never know when an emergency is going to happen, mm. I guess. Well, you mentioned that was one of your favourite stations, being your first. Mm. And from what you've shared so far, you can tell why. Uh, introduced to rugby, you found that extra sport and travelled with it. Uh, and you did a few things with your actual trade, which is really cool. And then where did you go after that? What's next? So bef- just before I went to my second posting, I then went on tour abroad. So I was on a four-month deployment to the Falkland Islands. Okay. And so that was my first official operation in the military, going away. And it was at a time where the sort of Iraq war had finished and Afghan was sort of on and off, sort of slowly um, sort of coming to an end. And so the only places that we sort of mainly went to as the RAF were sort of Cyprus or the Falklands. And so I um, was just told one day, they said, right, you're going to go to the Falklands. And I was like, yeah, exciting. You know, what does this mean? And um, you literally get told by email... <laughs> I remember getting his email from the manager saying, oh, yeah, you're off. And I'm like, oh, when? (laughs) And I remember misreading it. And I saw a date on there and it said, like, in three months' time. And I was like, in three months' time? And it has a list of all these, like, courses that I had to attend before I went away. And I was like, can I do that? Can I do this? And they're like, no, you you, you know, plonker. You're reading a form wrong. That's the date of when the training will start. You're going in six months' time. Okay. So I was like, oh, you know, I've got time to sort of let it settle in, adjust, because I had a lot of courses to get in. So for that deployment, I had to do Aeromed, which is Aeromedical Evacuation Training. So I had to go to Bryce Norton, which is the big REF terminal where a lot of the military flights fly from, and do Aeromed training. So I had to learn how to put... um, injured patients on an aircraft safely, whether they were stretcher, whether they were seated, what the process was and how to actually um, travel to another country to pick up a patient and what the process is of getting them sorted and bringing them back to the UK if they needed like emergency treatment or an operation or something like that. And so I did all the training and loved it. You get a nice flight out of it. So I went to, ironically, the Falkland Islands (laughs) <laughs> which was perfect because it was just before I was due, about two months before. So I took a few of my kit out there and oh, okay. left it with the medic who I was about to take over from, but they were already there. So I made friends with this medic, said, yep, I'm your um, next medic that's coming in in a couple of months' time. Can I leave some stuff in your room? So he's bringing everything down at one go. And, uh, and that's what I did. And why, why do they do that flight beforehand? To, just to practice. So really? it's just a practice, a practice, it's a practice flight. So the Falklands is in the South Atlantic. So it's yeah. a very, it's the longest flight I've ever done. I, I flew there in 2005. Oh, 
I'm, I'm guessing you go the same route because, well, you flew us yeah. out there. So Ascension Islands, right? Yeah, Ascension. It's the stop off. So a little um, prison cage that it they leave you in. Really is, yeah. Do you want to explain that for people that have never been? <laughs> so Ascension <laughs> Islands is like the halfway point to the Falklands. And um, when you land, it's very small island, quite uh, rocky. And the airfield strip is in between two mountains, pretty much. And so it's like hit or miss. You just hope you've got a really good pilot. Because it, <laughs> it just looks like your wings are about to get taken off. But when you land, there's like, um, I think they call it like the prison or the um, the cage or something like that. And it's basically where they put all the passengers in an area so you can't wander across an airfield. And um, so they can sort of give the aircraft a once-over, quick tidy, and fill it up back up with fuel again. So you get back on that same aircraft to do your second leg of the journey. So it's essentially a terminal with nothing in it. An outside terminal. <laughs> in a, the middle of the... Yeah, a this. big cage on an island that looks amazing that you just want to get out and go to the sea and yep. dip your feet in. Yeah, in the sun. And there's no shade, no <laughs> cover, one toilet. I think maybe a vendor machine, but you had to have the right currency. Yeah, which, which none of us have. had. Nope. <laughs> and we're all really thirsty. We had to wait to get back on the plane to have a drink or anything at the time. I'm sure it's better now. Well, I'd hope so. Yeah. But back <laughs> then you were sort of just left to it and you're like, oh, I've got a phone I can't use. I don't know anybody. So you hope to make a friend. No Wi-Fi. I don't smoke. <laughs> so you don't have that smokers sort of group that you always get. And yeah, you just have to make the best out of a boring situation. And you're there for about an hour and a half, two hours. It feels longer. Definitely feels longer. <laughs> And um, and yeah, I was like, "Where's the hotel? <laughs> you know, where's where's over, where do I go? What do I do?" And they literally just chauffeur you like your sheep going into a pen. I'm I'm glad that you as RAF get treated the same way. Oh, it's horrendous, <laughs> <laughs> terrible about how we get treated. But um, and yeah, I mean, you get onto that second leg of the flight, and God, I can't even remember how long the flights well, were. If I remember was... correctly, I might be wrong here, but I remember something is either eight nine. Eight hours first, then nine hours, or nine hours first and then eight hours? I think the second part is the longest part. So that's the nine-hour one? Yeah, so I mean, it's eight for nine on the way down. And, and then that's Bryce down to... Bryce to... Ascension. Ascension. Yeah, it's eight hours. Yeah. And then nine hours. Nine to the Falklands, I believe. I think that's about right. Yeah. There's a lot more sea, I remember, on the second part. Yeah. So even looking out the window, you get to a point where you can read, you can watch, you know, programs on the thing on the back of the seat in front of you. And depends how busy it is. Most of the time, you tend to have two seats each because of how long it is, so you can stretch out a bit. So I was quite lucky. I was quite spaced out. And even better when I came back, because I was Aeromed, I did my own seat. So I gave myself a bank of four in the middle. Nice, nice. <laughs> so I thought, I'm lying down for this. What was you flying out on? Can you remember? It was an RAF Yeah, I, I think, was it a Voyager? I'm no good with names, by the way. Big grey one. Okay. Aren't they all big and yeah. great? <laughs> <laughs> I think it was a Voyager. I should be good, but I'm not. To me, they're still all planes. <laughs> all, all, all I remember is, one, is it a Herc? Because I know what that is. Wasn't two, a Herc. Two, is it grey? Well, they all are. Yeah. Uh, and three, do you fly backwards? <laughs> no. <laughs> and, it... and it doesn't go wacka wacka. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was a Voyager. Oh, I definitely got Voyager on the way back. So that was the new big super duper aircraft that okay. was coming out. Okay. 
Um, but yeah, I really don't remember. I just remember it being a long and comfortable yeah, you flight. Had, you technically had to do that two times. One, this practice route. And yeah. Then, and then another one to get out there a and few months later. And then another one. But I loved the Falklands. I, I saw it as like um, Butlins for the military. Because I don't know whether it was because I was a medic and we get treated really well out there. And I'm not someone who just um, sits in my room and I'm bored. You know, I wanted to get out and about and experience what the local scenery is and I remember that was the first time I was on a helicopter first time I've seen penguins and elephant seals like if you like in nature and you know exploring it was an amazing place yeah I, I, I definitely concur that um, and I found that penguins move faster than you think they can because yeah. they, they out they out walked me a few times you can smell them before you see them <laughs> that's also you true you really can that's also it true was, um, yeah you can do island hopping going to all the little islands and we're very lucky that the Falkland government gave the base the bowling alley and we had cinema yeah yeah and it was yeah I just enjoyed it I thought you know what work hard play hard let's yeah. um good pool there as well I didn't go in it actually no 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 all right, okay. I think it was because it was quite early on a weekend and I liked my lions or I was on duty. Okay, good excuse. So, um, I was on yeah, duty. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was probably just full of kids, to be fair. So, um, but no, it was great. Like Stanley, it it's like yeah. a, you don't get any tarmac in the Falklands. It's all stone. Mm. So what could be 10 miles away takes you an hour to get there. Yeah. Because you either have to watch that there's big uh, ditches either side the, uh, the road or there's loads of signs saying mines, watch out. That's true. I mean, you see the sheep everywhere on minefields. Yeah, yeah. And you're waiting for one of them to explode. But um, no, it's great. Great diner in Stanley. Yeah. I wonder if you remember that one. I, there's one that everybody went to. I can't remember. Um, and it had really good cake. Well, we, when we went to Stanley, because we, we, we had a, a week off or something, uh, we just drank a lot. There was a bar there, went uh, to a lot. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was a couple, yeah, there was a Navy bar. Yeah, we didn't go there. Where a lot of the Navy <laughs> went and it was like all these memorabilia on the walls and everything of all the ships that came in. Yeah. But, um, and then it was it a big um, whale jawbone thing in the middle of Stanley? Oh, yes. Yeah, um, yeah something like that. Yeah. And it, I just remember Stanley just, the whole of it seems to be on a slant. Yeah. So. <laughs> it, was, it was such a different world. It really is. Like, isn't it? Yeah. Everyone that lived there must have had a big tank of fuel because there was like one petrol station. It yeah. doesn't matter where you live, there was just one. And yeah, and I can't, like the accent was like a mixture between American, Brazilian, I don't know. Like it had its own strange concoction of accents. Yeah. But can... but they're all really nice people, aren't they? Oh, lovely. All really, really nice people. Our receptionist in the med centre, um, she actually had to bring in a baby penguin one day because she just found it on her land. And it was um, newly born but been left by the mother. And yeah. and it was great. We had a baby penguin in the med centre. <laughs> I was like, this is amazing. But, I, I, uh, I think uh, what, what put me off the Falkland Islands was the weather. The fact that you could have four seasons yeah. in a day. And I remember the, the first day we got there and they were showing us around and giving us the briefs that you get given. Uh, it was sunny when we were walking there. <laughs> it then changed to rain, okay? And as we came out, it was sleeting slash hailstoning. And I'm like, what is this? It's ri- you hear about <laughs> it, but you don't believe it until you get yeah. there. And it it truly was. You had to pack for all weathers every day. You had to keep a bag 
um, of what, the opposite of what you were wearing. And yeah, that was really odd. Like we would get patients coming in who have been on exercise and they've got like potential frostbite. And you look outside and you're like, it's a heat wave. <laughs> How did you get this? Yeah. But it was like no ozone layer or something or really thin. Yeah. And so, then the um, last bit that really, oh, it frustrated me so much. And if my mum's listened to this, she knows because I wrote, <laughs> I wrote home about this so many times. It was the wind. It's just constant yeah. and it didn't stop. And when you tried to get in your truck, it would close the door on your leg. It would... <laughs> it's like burning wind. Yeah. You would have half a dry face and half a sunburnt face. Yeah. It's moisturise. I remember asking for moisturiser in my little uh, shoeboxes. Oh, really? Because <laughs> I never was a big moisturiser until I went there. And I was like, this is, my skin's either going to fall off or scrape off or burn. It was, it was unreal, but one experience. Yeah. Like I, I'll probably never go there again, but absolutely loved my time that I did. Did and you learn a lot when you were there about your trade? Yeah. So I've never, like, it was very similar. I was still working in a med centre. But um, I probably did more hands-on, more treating, where in current med centres, it's you do treat, but for the RF, it's probably not as much as the other services. There's probably more admin involved. And um, But yeah, when I went out there, I treated more patients. And I obviously had to sort out the aeromed side of things. So for any patient that's Already, I was like a ground handler, so I wasn't actually doing flights anywhere. I had to sort of receive the patients coming back from being aeromedded out. So, and that doesn't have to be military. It could be um, Falkland Islanders who have just gone for an appointment in the UK because that's where the specialist care is. Okay. So I would have to meet them at the terminal when they get back and just make sure they're okay and then get them into, make sure they've got transport or family or someone picking them up on the station and obviously make sure they have access to the station because it is still a military site. So, um, and vice versa, like we had an emergency where there was a, it was a mother who just gave birth in Stanley Hospital, but she lost so much blood that she was literally had one hour to live. And we had to get her from Stanley to the med centre, which again on that rubbish road takes forever make sure that her and her newborn baby were safe. And he, I don't know if it was a boy or girl, but they were in an incubator. We had to get all of that onto a flight over to, I think they went to, was it Argentina? There was like a specialist hospital, I believe, in like Argentina or somewhere sort of South America type way. And they basically had an hour to live and we had to get there from one country to another, stabilise them. And they had their own medical team that went on that flight. And it was one of those where you're like, we don't think they're going to make it. Like, literally bleeding out, the worst situation I've ever seen. And because I've never did any sort of war conflicts before. But to see something like that come through and then go, whoa, I've just got to do whatever I can do to make sure the right aircraft is ready. We've prepped the inside to make sure that they are strapped down on their stretchers and the incubator as well, and they had any assistance to the medical team that they needed. And luckily, we found out they both survived surgery and they were all absolutely fine, but it literally was hit or miss. And that's probably the main incident I had whilst I was out there. Okay. Yeah. Well, but it was good. It had a happy ending. Yeah, and, I was going to say, it's good that that happened. You know, it's one of those who just think, whoa, this really does happen. 
you know, you might not see it all the time, but you still need to be there, ready and prepped. And, um, but yeah, no, I, overall, I had a great tour. You know, I, I think I grew more as an adult. I, you know, just had a great time. And luckily I had Halloween. I had, it was just before Christmas when I came back. And I surprised my mum actually when I returned as well because she didn't, I lied to her and told her my flight was later than what it was. Okay. But she didn't realise I was landing a day before her birthday. And so I had to sort it out with my dad. He had to pretend to go for an office meeting in London, but pick me up at Bry's. And um, yeah, next minute I was at the back door of my parents' house, dad telling my mum that there's a parcel that she's missed that it's just left here. Can you go and get it? <laughs> Mum's like, no, you get it. Dad's like, no, it's for you. I'm not getting it. And then there's just uh, me stood outside and then she burst into tears and I said, happy birthday for tomorrow. But um, I've made it for your birthday. And yeah, that was really good. Nice touch. She's like, I spoke to you this morning. I'm like, I know you did. <laughs> I kept saying I got to go. I meant I got to go on a flight. <laughs> but she thought I was arriving a week later. That's nice. So That's nice. luckily the flight's all connected up fine and there was no big delay. But um, but yeah, that was good. So I think I was really lucky I had a good tour because I do hear about people that have been to the Falklands and they hated it. They thought it was rubbish and boring and they didn't enjoy it at all. But I found it complete opposite. I loved it. Yeah. Well, when you came back from there, what what's the next stage? Do you stay at your current station for a little longer or do you get posted somewhere else? So I went back to Waddington just to sort of say hi. I'm back from the Falklands. You know, I've made it. And it's not long before I'm told um, I'm posted, which is what I wanted. Most people do get posted between stations and bases every sort of two to four years, depending. And I asked for a change. So I asked to go to RVF Wittering, which is sort of Lincolnshire, Cambridgeshire border. Uh, just off the A1. A lot of people know it by driving past it on the A1. So it's like a big aircraft outside the front. And uh, yeah, so I got posted to Wittering again in a med centre role and back to the same old job that I did at Waddington, really. So still works in the main admin office. There's also elements where you work in a pharmacy and in stores and doing hospital referrals. And yeah, that's what I did until the end of my career. Okay. And are you, what rank are you at this point? Same rank, same SAC. Um, so once I did trade training, I became an LAC. Which so is? First, if I go back to the beginning, so when you're in training, yeah. you're an AC. So that's just aircraftman. Okay. So that's like the military have. Private? Yeah. Is that your training rank? Well, engineers is sapper, but as, yeah. a, as an infantry or something, so it's we, private. We probably split that up. So we have AC, which is what you have in basic and trade training. Okay. And then once you've done your trade training and you um, you straight away become an LAC, which is a leading aircraftman slash woman. And then once you've proven your job and your actually technical ability during your first base, it could be like 12 weeks, not really that long. That's when you become an SAC. So okay. that would be like... Like Lance Corporal, so yeah, so private going into Lance Corporal, I guess, is like us going from AC to SAC. Right. We just have a middle bit to say yeah. that we've done the training, but we're not quite competent to be an SAC just yet. And then, so yeah, I'm still an SAC, which is um, like a Lance Corporal. Okay. okay. <laughs> Wherever the Navy is, 
I have no idea. We didn't mean to say uh, say it in such a disrespectful way. No, I just... <laughs> what, whatever the Navy is. <laughs> well, there's so many different versions yeah. of the same rank. Yeah. And like the Army, you have names dependent on your trade, like Sapper. Mm-hmm. But for the RAF, we don't. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what your trade is. You will be SAC. Yeah. So... So you're saying that the RAF has an easier... Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's all I know, though. Once you're in your one service, that's all you know. That's all you know. Exactly. You know, until exactly. you get to a bar and you meet someone, you're like, oh, what are you? Yeah. So, um... It's like doing this podcast. I've learned so much about different countries and different services within those countries. Yeah. And what ranks they have and go through. And I, I'm slowly learning it. I can't remember it all, but it's, <laughs> uh, it's just good to learn. And, yeah, what you just shared there is no doubt going to teach some of us. Yeah, so definitely. thank you. Um, so yeah, your first, uh, oh sorry, your second station. Second station Wh- was Witterington? Wittering. Witterington. No turn. No turn? Wittering. Oh, just Wittering. Yeah. Trying to put the British twinging, twinging. Trying to make it more RAF, <laughs> I don't think you can. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I just worked in a med centre, um, going between different offices inside okay. that and uh, and that was it, yeah. And more sport there? Um, so I was still playing rugby. I came back and I... Um, I think I went to the Falklands in September to December 2013. And then I came back and played rugby for 2014. But then that's when I got injured. So I was, I played the games earlier in 2014. And then when it came to October 14, I was at a training camp at Holton, which is where our basic training is. And I was just, we were just doing like a normal training session. And I think I either put my right thumb against a ball or the floor or something. And I think I just sort of sprained it, just pulled it back. And it was a bit of a niggle. And um, and at the time I was like, oh, absolutely nothing, you know, just get it strapped up. And typical medic treatment is just tubey grip and a bit of ice and a plaster, you know, smiley face on it and you're good to go. Ibuprofen. Uh, if it's really if bad, it's really bad. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and um, and yeah, we I played a game the following day, still with like this sort of niggle thumb pain, but I was still able to do a tackle, just use my head and shoulders quite a bit, and um, and yeah, it wasn't until really when I finished that weekend training and I got back on a Monday back to the med centre, and quite fortunate I work in a med centre so I can just see the doctor fairly quickly and I just said look I just sprained my thumb nothing much um what do you reckon and uh, they were like oh let's go for an x-ray and it said I had like widening in the joint or something and I just thought oh that's just rubbish it just means it'll settle it's just a bit swollen and it'll be absolutely fine but it never did so afterwards I had physio and they were like yeah let's try all these exercises you know bendy bendy wiggle wiggle and uh and I was like yeah let's do that you know I'm I'm usually a good patient I just do what I'm told but no medics are rubbish patients and we don't know what we're told (laughs) but um but you do the best of a bad situation and uh, I remember having physio and this was going weeks and weeks and weeks and I was like this is silly it was just a sprain you know surely it'll just even if I don't do anything, it'll get better over time and then I can continue. But I found that it was just getting um, 
sort of harder and harder to like hold a pen or to put pressure against my thumb joint. And yeah, it got to the point where I had to be downgraded, which meant I wasn't fully fit to do my job. So I can still treat people, but I probably couldn't do any sort of heavy lifting because I sort of found it awkward and painful on that part. And, um, and with downgrades, you're downgraded for six months at a time and you can get upgraded at any time. But as soon as it's 18 months worth, you have to go for um, a medical board, which basically just means going to another place where they specialise in downgrading and they just check that what you are fit to do and what you're not fit to do within your job or whether you have to limit your duties. So um, it got to a point where it was 18 months after spraining and I just thought, this is ridiculous. And at the time, it was starting to affect the rest of my hand. So my fingers were starting to get weaker. And my grip was going. And I would have this sort of tremor. And it would just sort of shake every time I try and move it. But I just couldn't still pick stuff up. And I just couldn't understand what was going on. I thought, I played rugby. You know, I swam. I did all this stuff. How was just a thumb stopping me from doing my job? And I was probably very in denial about it, for oh, it was just absolutely fine and didn't realise the seriousness of what a med board was because that appointment can change your life. You know, you can find out whether you're fit for your duty and you can continue back to your job or it can stop everything and that's you kicked out of the military. And surprising for me, I found out that you can't really be a one-handed medic very well. And so, and because they, at the time, it was, it was affecting my hand and I was having treatment at Headley Court, which is the Defence Medical Rehab Centre, and I was seeing all these physios and doctors and uh, exercise rehab instructors to try and get grip in my hand and using different exercise tools. And I tried everything, but it got to a point where you just can't do it anymore and it's just affecting everything you do and so I went to this med board and they were like I'm sorry you're unfit for service and that was all I was told and I was like this how can this be I've got a left arm you know I've got two legs I'm absolutely fine I just can't grab stuff and they just said look this is the reality of it it's got worse over time you need to you know, actually accept what's happening. It's not a sprain. It's obviously something that's much more than this. You've had all these tests, you've had treatment, you've been to Headley, and it's 18 months after a sprain. It's more serious than this. And I was just like, wow, this is, this can't be happening. You know, I feel like I've failed being an Olympian. I failed being a PTI. And now for the third time, I've failed being a medic. And I was just like, wow, what am I going to tell my parents? What am I going to tell my boss? You know, I went there with the attitude of, oh, it's absolutely fine. They'll just say, you know, no heavy lifting or something. And no, that was it. I got told, thank you for your service. Unfortunately, you're unfit for it. Fill out these forms. Goodbye. And that was it. I was just like, wow, shit. What do I do? I have no backup plan at all. Felt like a failure, felt like I let everybody down, wish it never happened. And I remember calling my sort of 
med center deputy manager up and i said yeah unfit for service and they were like no you're joking they just thought no not you that's that's not who you are you know and i was like yeah i'm serious i've just been told i'm unfit for service i can no longer do my trade and that's me out of the military and so they were just like okay you come in tomorrow we'll have a chat we'll sit down and we'll talk about the next steps and I was like, oh, what do I wear? What time? Where? When? You know, I've always been told what to do, where to go, how to do it. And they were like, whatever time you want. And all I kept thinking was, what time does that mean? You know, I need a time. And um, I said, OK, I'll, I'll be in for like 10. Let's say 10. And they were like, yeah, OK, we'll see you then. And then I remember, because I drove myself there, I didn't want to take anybody with me because I thought it would just be like a quick five minute in and out business and so I was driving home and I thought I'm gonna have to tell my parents I'm gonna have to be honest I can't hide it anymore because all they knew is that it was just a thumb sprain and I was just going for an assessment and so yeah I called my mum up she was like okay I understand but let me put your dad on because he takes sort of situations like this a little bit better and so I told my dad and, yeah, he was just like, it's okay. You know, you'll be fine. Things happen. We'll figure it out. You'll do something else and you'll move on. And I was just like, wow. My dad's never said that before, you know. He's always been a sort of a business mind, you know. And, yeah, he was actually understanding of what was going on. And he said, it's fine. Mm. I was just like, wow, absolutely emotional now to thinking about it. But Yeah, bringing your, it, it's kind of like bringing yourself back to reality after you walk away from the med board, right? Yeah, With definitely. Then, it's... like you say, giving you that, old, it's not even an ultimatum, they're telling you that's the end. Yeah. And you've had such a great career with, all the things you've done and achieved, uh, yeah, it's a shock to the system. And no doubt it was emotional at that time as well for you. Yeah, I was still in denial. I was like, oh, I'll wake up tomorrow and it'll be a dream, you know. Yeah. But um, but no, I, <laughs> I remember my parents were about to go on holiday, I think the next day. And I ended up meeting them at an American diner on the A1 to sort of celebrate leaving. And okay. I was just like, all right, I've only just been told, let's not rub it in. But, um, but, you know, burger and chips, milkshake, and you're happy again. <laughs> and, did, did, uh, they, did they give you any time frame or was it literally next not, week? <laughs> not at the time. They just said, we'll be in touch. Oh, we'll right. let you know. Right. Um, they have to, like, fill out all the paperwork and send it to your med centre, which, unfortunate for me, that was my job in the med centre, to retrieve downgraded paperwork. Oh, no. And so I kind of downgraded myself. Right. <laughs> so I had to do my own, you know... Paperwork. You're leaving. I thought, oh, <laughs> could I change this? But um, but yeah, no. And yeah, I don't know if that made it harder. Like they they didn't actually do my medical when I was at my med board. So we have to do like a full body assessment, check what works and what doesn't. They right. sort of, I think I had a new guy. So I had to have the medical done by my own doctors. And so that was strange because they're almost like your work colleagues and your friends yeah. when actually they're doing your medical for you to leave. And I was like, oh, this is hard. 
let's just be quiet and let them wiggle things around. And, um, and yeah, then I had to speak to the welfare officer where part of my job in a med centre was to liaise with him to sort out people that were leaving the military. So I'm like, well, I won't email you because um, it's me. And he just said, yeah, I saw your name. Gutted. And I was like, on a plus side, I know what happens. I know the paperwork I've got to fill out and trying to make into a lighthearted, you know, situation. And I still didn't know when I was going to leave. All okay. I knew is um, that they offered me all these courses. I had to do like a resettlement course. Okay. And just the word resettlement course just sounds boring. And I just thought, oh, God, it's going to be PowerPoint and someone telling me that I need to do this job and that job. And I couldn't bother it at the time. I just thought, whatever, I'll do it to tick a box. And But actually, it was really good. I learned I had to actually own a CV because <laughs> I'd never had a CV before. And I never put on paper what I've actually done in my life. And so it actually worked out for the best. You need to sort of believe in the system sometimes. And mm. I sort of turned into a yes person because before that, I'd probably say, oh, no, why do I need to do this and this? Why do I need to do a certain course? Where I almost had to change my mindset and say, actually, just say yes. Just shut up and get on with it. If you don't like it, Think of what your mum said. You can walk out. You can walk away. You can go home. I don't care anymore. And, yeah, so I did all these courses and I went to Tedworth House, which is the Help for Heroes HQ, and did um, these courses on what it's like to be in the workplace. And we went to a certain... Um, went to a local company and they spoke to us about what it's like to transition. And... Yeah, I just thought, you know what, let's um, not lose this opportunity. I'm still in the military, you know, I've not actually had my end date just yet. Just keep yourself busy because if I didn't, I think my skill would actually be I can eat a sharing size pack of Doritos as a single serving and watch 10 hours of films, you know, and that was it. You know, if, if I wasn't on a course, I was on the sofa or I was dragging my mum out to a coffee shop. And little did I know, I spoke to her the other day and she said, yeah, we drank a lot of coffee. <laughs> we used to go out every other day to a different town just to have a coffee shop. And my mum's like, yeah, we spent a lot of money. <laughs> but I just didn't realise I just needed company because I live on my own. I didn't have that anyone to sort of vent to apart from my parents. And my brother and sister have their own families, so I didn't want to bore them with, you know, me moaning. And so my mum got the sort of the bad end of it. And, but luckily these courses were great. You know, they were absolutely, I met some friends for life. It's uh, one of the main ones I went to was called uh, Battleback at okay. um, Lillyshaw, which is West Midland, area Shropshire type way. And uh, it's run by the Royal British Legion. And it's basically a multi-activity course that you can do and it's for those who are um, either injured, leaving the military or in between places and treatments or whatever. You can just learn how to adapt and to have fun playing all these different activities. It doesn't, it's not always sport, but naturally I enjoyed them the most. But, um, and yeah, I made friends for life and it was someone there 
a good friend of mine who told me all about the Warrior Games and the Invictus Games. And I was just like, what on earth are you on about? You know, what drugs are you taking? And he's like, well, do you do a bit of sport? And I was like, well, I've quit. I'm not touching sport ever again since I had that sprained thumb. That's why I'm here. Moaned at him for quite a bit. And, um, and he's like, yeah, you need to get back into it. I'm like, no, I don't. Every time I touch it, I'm injured or I'm annoyed or I smell a chlorine, you know. <laughs> and I just said, no, that's not for me. And it was until the end of this activity course, I sort of learned how to do kayaking and um, riding bikes through the woodland area and all sorts, water polo, the works. And I was just like, if I look at my time on this course, the only time I smile is when I'm in a sporting environment. So there's got to be something there that I need to trust the system for. And I was just like, as long as I don't compare myself, you know, something new. And, um, yeah, and then I thought, what was that you were telling me about on day one, this games thing, you know? And he's like, yeah, you've got the Warrior Games, which is... um, what the Americans have there's obviously competition between different services and all these wounded, injured and sick servicemen. And, um, and he told me all about it and he said, yeah, there's also the Invictus Games. And I was like, I'm sure I've heard of it, but you have to be an amputee, right? You know, that's what I had this, that's all I see on TV. And uh, he's like, no, don't be silly. You don't have to be an amputee to take part in these games. You know, it's for anybody. You know, mental health, physical health, really doesn't matter. It's all about helping you recover and learning a new skill at the same time or something that you could actually use in everyday life and make new friends. And I was like, well, it sounds like a really cool camp, you know. Maybe I'll get free stash. (laughs) (laughs) It's all about the kit. Yeah. And and he said, actually, there's a like a try-it day. And there was one near me in Nottingham. And I was like, oh, I'll think about it. But I knew in my, in my head, in my heart, that I won't turn up unless I'm with someone. I had this complete, I don't want to turn up and be sort of turned away for not being an amputee or for being rejected for one reason or another. You know, you, couldn't, you can't see my injury. You just know that I have it. And luckily, my friend lives um, not too far away, literally like 45 minutes an hour away. So I said, oh, can I meet you in a car park? And so we went to uh, this try day and they tell you all about both games and what sports are available, the fact you can actually adapt, which I never heard of before. Apart from the Paralympics, that was the only adaptive sport sort of situation that I've ever sort of heard about. And I was like, wow, you can actually do all this stuff. And he's like, yeah, you know, you told me... Um, but you had a bit of a sporting history. What did you used to do? And I said, oh, nothing. He's like, no, tell me. Or as you know, I'll hit you in the arm or something. (laughs) He'll beat it out of me. And I said, oh, well, I swam out of it and I played a bit of rugby. And he's like, great, they've got swimming. And I'm like, no, I quit. (laughs) And, um, And I never touched a single sport since that rugby sprain injury. I just thought, no, not for me. It's obviously a sign. And, uh, yeah, found out I actually know quite a few people at that try day. There was people that I had friends in common or we've heard of each other's name one way or another. And the military sort of family becomes 
this close-knit one that you don't realise how closely you know each other. And actually, you probably were on the same base at the same time. You just never actually said hi. And, yeah, I thought, actually, you know, we'll give it a go. I signed up saying I was interested, but I thought, I could still walk away. This is not actually happening. And at the same time, I was still going through resettlement and trying to figure out what a CV is supposed to look like and try not to eat too many Doritos. Have they given you a date for your end date of the military yet? Not at this point, point, no. no. It was um, a little bit further on. So I signed myself up saying I was interested. So they had some like weekends away where you could try certain sports that you think you might want to take part in. Okay. And um, and I originally signed up for indoor rowing. I think I think uh, I think it was just indoor rowing at the time, because the lady who showed me on a triad day said, "Yeah, you can change the handle," and I said, "Oh, but nobody rows. You know, it's a rubbish sport. It's the one machine in the gym that everybody walks past because it's horrible. <laughs> Unless you want to go on the bike and then watch an episode of Friends and slowly pedal. That was my exercise." <laughs> which is shocking when I wanted to be a PTI, it really is. But, um, and yes, I thought, oh, I'll give, um, oh, sitting volleyball a go because I thought, bum, shuffle, hit a ball. I'll learn it, see what, see what it's all about. Bit of a team sport. And, um, and yeah, and it was at that time, they said, oh, um, we're doing all these camps, you can sign up for it. And then at the end of it, you can decide and apply if you want to actually consider going forward for either the Warrior Games or the Invictus Games. And it was at that point I remember applying, but I was told what my end of service date was. Okay. And so I had, it was about 12 weeks left, roughly. And I was like, yeah, that's fine. You know, I've done majority of my courses by now. I've done all the resettlement side of stuff. It's just a case of working out what I want to do as a job. And... um and annoyingly, I saw a career guy at the same time and I filled out all these like online assessment forms that you have to do and see what characters you have and abilities and it'll tell you like a list of careers that you could possibly do. And uh, yeah, annoyingly it said I could do um, administration in a medical atmosphere and I was like, that was my job in the military. I was a medic, doing med admin, but I've just been told I can't do you know, and it was such, I was like, that's so surreal. But then it dawned on me that actually you've got the military side that you can't do as well. So I couldn't hold a weapon. I yeah. couldn't probably do CPR as effective. And it's the sort of the battle side of stuff that I wasn't able to do. Even put a respirator on one-handed. Yeah. You know, um, and then I thought actually that probably was the correct decision when I sort of realised there was it wasn't just a case of um, opening up a plaster. You know, it was a lot more than that. So it became clearer at that Yeah, point. definitely. Yeah. At the time, I was just like, oh, I don't know what to run about, but they've made a decision, you know. And, um, and yeah, I was at this point where I knew I had to get a job, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. But annoyingly, I was told what I did was what I should do. And I was just like, huh, okay. And then I remember at Headley Court seeing um, posters around for... Um, a new centre they were building because Headley was actually going to close. And I was like, oh, wouldn't it be funny if I worked in a rehab place where I've just been a patient? And, yeah, little did I know, they were building it in Loughborough. 
which actually is not that far away from me at all. And I was like, that could work, you know. It'd be like a halfway house. I'd be in the military, or I'll be in a military atmosphere, but I won't have to salute anyone <laughs> or call them sir or mom, you know. Yeah. But the hardest part is you would have to choose what to wear. You know, you've done no, no handbags or high heels. You know, you'd have to actually pick it up. And um, and it was during this time with these sort of a, the time I was applying to say, you know what, let's try and do the Invictus Games and the Warrior Games. It all sort of happened at the same time, which kept me busy, which was probably the best part about it. Because if both of them didn't happen at the same time, I probably wouldn't have the confidence to go for the other. So it sort of worked together, really, which was quite perfect timing for me kind of aided in your transition yeah definitely yeah. I think back to Street. you get to a point where if you're not doing anything you're almost digging yourself a bigger hole and mm. you're getting worse and I had my mum tell me you've got to apply for a job and I was like yeah I will and I was looking at local hospitals thinking maybe I can just do med admin forgetting that my injury was my right hand which is my dominant dominant side and that I haven't actually written anything left-handed yet that was what I sort of didn't realize I sort of forgot that I almost had an injury because I just sort of ignored it and left it alone and um and at this same time my injury was actually getting worse so rather than just being sort of a hand at the time it was slowly going up to the elbow and every time I was bending my arm I would start having this tremor this shake and my fingers were almost becoming sort of like dead like there was no functional use at all but to look at it, it looks absolutely fine. But, um, yeah, and I thought, well, I'm going to have to really look into this because I can't do just any old job. I can't, like, pick up a box very well or, you know, treat anybody on the physical side. So I sort of made that decision that actually I do, I did enjoy being a medic. I can just do the admin side, like the annoying computer test said, you know, just do admin in a medical atmosphere. And then, um, yeah, I was looking at NHS jobs and I thought, it's just not the same. You know, are they going to understand my awesome banter and my <laughs> great character and attitude? Um, as long as they start after 10, because I'm not a morning person. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, I looked into it and I thought, mm, maybe, maybe not. And then, perfect timing, the new Headley Court place was actually built and they just started the interview process and I was like oh that's great let me uh put in an application you know not done this a while they'll understand what I write down if I do like acronyms in the military world and um and yeah I went straight through the interview process and I originally went for like a welfare admin job so I thought oh I've been around patients quite a lot maybe I just want to see a different aspect to it maybe I'll do the welfare side or the accommodation side and sort of see a different side of it. And um, interview went well. I remember trying to crack a joke, which was rubbish, but they laughed. And I was like, <laughs> absolutely fine. And uh, I was trying to justify why adminers like cups of tea or something like that. And I thought, where on earth has that came from? I've never mentioned tea before. I've never mentioned an admin joke before. But... Um, but yeah, they sort of put me at ease and luckily they were military because they were military staff interviewing, but they just happened to interview civilians for this position. And, um, and yeah, strangely enough, I didn't get that job, but they offered me a different position that they said I would suit more. 
And they said, oh, yeah, it's forced generation. I was like, what on earth is forced generation? But I thought they're offering me a job. Mum was like, say yes. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I can always walk out. That was the, the life lesson. And so I was like, I accept. And I was like, I've got a job. And so then I could relax knowing that whatever it is, I'll learn on a job, figure it out, and I can always say no to. But I knew I had that um, stability because you get to a point where once you've had your last day in service, you're no longer getting paid and it's out your own pocket. And that's when it dawned on me that actually I have savings, but I don't want it to go. You know, I need to actually get this job squared away and sorted. And so um, so I knew then job was sorted. I can just concentrate on the Invictus side. And um, yeah, did all the training camps, absolutely loved it. Met all these new friends because I found when I left the military, I lost friends as well that I thought were friends. I mean, you find out, yeah, you're not that close. You were just more colleagues. And um, and you always promise to stay in touch, but you never do. And, yeah, I got to a point where they said, oh, I'll put the application in. And I was like, all right then, you know, why not? Let's just put it in for giggles and just see what happens. And complete shock after all that time, they said, you've got a place on the Invictus Team UK team. You are going to Sydney. Nice. And I was like, oh, I'm going to Sydney. Do I get kit? <laughs> and um, and so yeah. When, when did they tell you that? Was that, was that the year before? Or? So uh, the games were 2018. So it was the end of 2017. Uh, yeah, so I left the military Feb 18, but the okay. games were end of 18. So okay. it sort of, as training started, was as I left the military. And you just got Which that job. Sort when of I well. just got the job. Yeah. So I don't know how that happened. That's great timing. Everything worked out perfectly. I don't know if it's fate. I don't know if I believe yeah. <laughs> in miracles, but... And where, where, where's the new uh, Headley Court then? Because it has moved, hasn't it? So, so it's in Loughborough now. So it's um, still called the Defence Medical Rehab Centre, but it's now called Stanford Hall, okay. not Headley Court. Yeah. And um, so weirdly enough, I now work in the same place or under the same centre name as I was as a patient. And it's within the outpatient, I found out, fourth generation. Actually, it's just the main name for all the admin officer staff. And you can sort of move around different teams, but they'll put you in a certain team when you get there. Right. And I found out it was um, the type of job that I was shying away from. And it was with patients and it was... Um, like doing all their appointments and referrals and all that sort of stuff, when I thought, let's try something different and go for welfare. But then I found out they were like, no, we want you to do this part of the job. Nice. And little did I know that is exactly as being a medic, using the exact same systems, exact same way. And half my friends were the patients because I met them at Headley and they were still in the treatment yeah. phase. And it was a bit of a shock when I turned up because my own doctor who saw me only six months prior was my consultant and I was his admin officer. And so we were now staff, not consultant patient. So that was really <laughs> awkward. He was like, what are you here for? You've not got an appointment. I was like, I've got a job <laughs> and I work. And, uh, and out of all teams they put me under, they put me under the upper quadrant team, which is the exact part of outpatients I was a patient under. 
and having all the treatment within the rehab courses. That's crazy. That's probably one of the best transitions I've yeah. heard. <laughs> so <date>. I now <laughs> give other people appointment letters and yeah. get them on rehab courses. And I know exactly how they feel, which is the best part of the job. Amazing. They come in and you can tell they're scared. They're, they've just been given like devastating news about injuries or whatever. And they're like, you know, what are the courses like? And I'm like, well, prepare to be sat down for a very long time. <laughs> I've, been, I've been on three inpatient courses. I've been a patient under Headley for years under this exact team. I know all about the staff. And yes, I hated them too, but I did eventually learn that they were nice. They were were trying to help me. But as a patient, you hate everybody and you blame everybody else for and your injury. Have you tried to uh, repay the PowerPoint aspect? No, <laughs> <laughs> no PowerPoint anymore. <laughs> and uh, and yes, and now I can I can actually be open and honest and say I know exactly how you feel. I know it's daunting when you come here. You're in a room with six other staff members all staring at your injury. And it's the best feeling in the world, giving back and explaining that I've been there myself. That's great news. That's great yeah. news. And then alongside that, you get selected for the first Invictus Games Invictus that you, Games. you tried out for. So it's my life suddenly gone from hectic to rubbish, hating everybody, to then happy and hectic again. But I like it, you know, it keeps you out of trouble. And I was still in denial about my injury. I still didn't accept it. But I was um, turning into a one-armed person, even though I have two arms. And my injury was still slowly getting worse over time. And even when I went to the Sydney Games, it was sort of elbowish, shoulderish sort of height. And I could make it tremor if I had to move it in a certain way, almost like a party trick. But that was when I really realised that I need to do one-armed sport and I sort of learned that about adapting sport is okay. And it's not embarrassing. You shouldn't be afraid or daunted. It's just a different way um, to actually do the sport. It's not a wrong way. It's not a disadvantage. It's just an alternative way. And, yeah, I remember being selected for the Games. I was with my... I think I was... I was home alone at the time. My parents on holiday again. And uh, I remember calling them up saying, I've just got an email. I'm, I'm in Team UK. No, like, really? I was like, hold on. I'm not sure. And I hung up, checked the email again, called back. And I was like, yeah, I'm sure. I'm pretty sure. That's what it says in bold. And um, I was just like, wow, this is amazing. And following that, you then have to have the announcement and you get um, all your kit and you meet all the rest of the guys that are on the team as well. And you have reserves as well. Did you say you get kit? You get kit. Free kit? Free kit. Stash? Yeah. <laughs> Not the most important part, but, you know, <laughs> it's great memories, you know. It's definitely a theme throughout your whole career. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All about the kit. Just see my attic. <laughs> and... Um, and yeah, I remember the process to the games. You have to um, attend all these training camps for the sports. And even before selection, I was only originally interested in rowing and sitting volleyball. But I didn't realise my friend who I met at the trite day put me down for swimming. And I was like, ah, oh, I told you I swam, but I didn't tell you I was going to apply for swimming. And, um, and that was when on the application, I just thought, you were allowed to put in 
as many spots as you wanted and you can always drop out. And so I said, okay, I won't, I'll do sitting volleyball, I'll do rowing and I'll do swimming. But I know that I can always say no to them and pull out before the games, you know, there's no pressure at all. And so um, en route to the games, I wasn't selected for sitting volleyball because you have to select certain people for the team. But I was absolutely fine with that because it really hurts your bum. And your bum shuffling, it's a lot. I didn't realise how hard sitting volleyball is, especially as a one-armed athlete. You're not very mobile. It's probably, you're more functional if you have a lower limb injury because you can actually move both arms to move your body around. Where one-armed, I was sort of, if I fell to my right, I sort of face-planted. There was no sort of stopping myself. So I wasn't as mobile, really. So I was kind of glad I wasn't selected for that one. And so I was selected for indoor rowing and swimming. And I was like, oh, bloody swimming. It always comes back to me one way or another. I, I said I quit swimming. I said I quit everything, but I'm obviously really rubbish at quitting. <laughs> and, and yeah, the games happened. It was September 2018, October, end of 2018. Come read exact dates. And, um, and I just thought, I've never been to Australia before. I've never done sport in front of my parents before because you're allowed to take two members of your family with you. And I chose my parents, even though my sister and brother were pretty jealous and weren't happy. But I did explain to them that they both have children and there's only two spaces. So you either have to not take your husband and pick your favourite child. So, um, yeah, I chose my mum and dad. And uh, naturally they said yes to attending. And, um, And it was the best experience of my life. I absolutely loved it. It was such a game changer and the way I mentally see things and just accepting that you can do adaptive sport and it is absolutely fine to be doing it in a different way. And it was the first time my parents have ever seen me swam one-armed since the Commonwealth trials 10 years prior because I just would not let them see me doing anything one-armed because I just felt like I was ashamed, I was a failure again, that they would compare and they'll be like, oh, well, you could have done that faster. When they wouldn't, that was just me playing tricks on my on myself and beating myself up. But I actually allowed them to see me swim one-armed and I remember coming out of the pool and just crying. I was just like, why am I crying? You know, you're better than this. And I realised that actually... We all understand each other's game. We know exactly what each other feels like. They know that that was a hard thing for me to actually accept and do. And I knew that they accepted me with an injury. And I could actually do sport and still be happy and not compare myself. And that was probably the first time I ever realised that life does go on and you're not defined by your injury. Mm. You know? I have a question on the swimming though. Yeah. So you mentioned it being adaptive. How did you adapt? I swam one arm. <laughs> did you did you tie your your other arm or? You can do, yeah. but I prefer not to. Okay. I um because my at the time it was sort of um elbow below sort of there was no sort of actual function. I sort of had to learn to swim one armed, left arm only. But in my mind, I thought I would be like Nemo, going around in circles. Okay. I'm glad there's lane ropes I can bounce off. 
But actually, because of my swimming history, I learned how to um, compensate and go against it. And, and yeah, it wasn't too bad, actually. I think it takes time and it does feel weird and you have to kick like hell, otherwise you do just sink. But, um, but yeah, no, I left my right arm as it is, just floating by the side. Okay. And I purely just did left arm only. Okay. Yeah. And so you get out there, you get told... You need to do some swimming. <laughs> yeah. we're, we're picking you for swimming. You're going to do some swimming. Yeah. Um, and then the rowing. Uh, in, get, indoor rowing, You yeah. got selected for the rowing as well. So how did that go? Because I'm guessing there's tr- uh, like qualifying events. Um, so you don't qualify for the Invictus. It's purely um, each country has their own way of selection. So for UK, it's all based on your um, recovery journey. It doesn't... You don't have to be the best, the fastest, the strongest. It has no, nothing to do with that at all. It's purely what are you going to get out of this? How is this going to help you move forward in your journey? And um, where I think other, I think like American or maybe Australia, it's like they do some trials and it's the top so many spaces get it. And I'm sure it changes over time, but I think that was what we did for Sydney. And, yeah, I get there for both of the sports. And in indoor rowing, my events were one-minute sprint and a four-minute endurance. And so for the rowing, I've adapted the... So it's basically an indoor row machine that you find in a normal gym. So it's got, like, um, a big fan at the front and a chain with a handle that you pull towards yourself on, like, a sliding seat. And so for me, being one-handed and one-armed... The handle is, I have a different handle, which is like um, half the size and it sort of pivots on itself so I can pull it to one side of my body, which sounds okay, but when you actually do it, you sort of forget how strong your legs are. You have to sort of compensate with one arm strength to try and hold off the rest of your body. And um, and four minute endurance does feel like half an hour. Horrendous, absolutely horrendous. I don't know why I sign up for these things, (laughs) but I thought, hey, let's give it a go. And, um, and then the swimming, the same, I swim one-armed. And me being me, I did all of them, all the events, because I just thought I could always pull out. I'd rather enter too much and pull out and rather than regret not putting your name in. You can't sort of add yourself in. So what were all those events? So I did 50 metres freestyle, 50 metres backstroke, 50 metres breaststroke and 100 metres freestyle. And we had a team relay as well. <laughs> it does sound like a lot of swimming. <laughs> so, yeah, and it was a 50-metre pool, so it was one length for the shorter ones okay. and two lengths for the big one, yeah. And what was the outcome? So I I did better than I expected, but then I don't know why. I think all, I, all my aims and my goals were to smile at the end of a race, don't compare yourself to your past, and don't sort of criticise your own achievements. And that was the main thing. I tried to keep it simple, but um, the indoor rowing was the first event and there was uh, three of us in my class, in like the one-armed class. And you don't, just because there's three of you doesn't mean you'll all get a medal automatically. So they do it as a, I'm sure it's called something, but it's basically they'll only, if there's like four of you, only three of you will get a medal or a trophy and if there's like three of you only two of you will get it so the last person won't get it so you can actually fight for it yeah 
and um, for it was four minute endurance was first, and I tied first with I think uh, American lady possibly, and we got and it's never happened before to actually tie in a race exact same meter, which is pretty hard to do even if you tried on an indoor row machine, and we both tied gold medal. Nice. And I was like. <laughs> What just happened? First event. First event. <laughs> I was like, oh, oh, okay. This is complete shock. And I never really thought about medals. And people say it all the time. They're like, oh, yeah, you'll do well. But for me, it wasn't about medals. It wasn't about achievements. It was more about I just wanted to be happy and actually have new sporting memories that I can just go away from. And, yeah, remember my... Mum jumping up and down and cheering and my dad was there smiling. I thought, oh, my God, my dad is smiling. And he is a smiler. But you know when they really, really, you yeah. know, go for it. And I'm like, blimey, they're happy. And then doing the medal ceremony and I was just like, how is this happening? This is this is a crazy event. Forgetting that I've got a second event like an hour later. So I then went back and did the, the nicer event, which is just the one-minute sprint you just go for it there's no planning or pacing or anything and it happened again I tied gold medal with the other athlete really so all three of us in my category we all got gold medals and oh, we really? all tied to each other <laughs> wow. which again it's never happened before I was like you just can't tie because meters it's literally like a hundredth of a second like equivalent it just doesn't happen but the fact that I tied with both of them for each event was amazing and it was kind of perfect really because we could all walk away going yeah we've done our best and yet you know got a nice little medal with a nice memorabilia with it and so yeah first first two events in my first race two gold medals nice nice crazy (laughs) i was like on a row machine on a row machine hang on on a piece of equipment that you said people just walked past it i walked past it (laughs) i never touched it it's just a horrible machine and um, and yet now I'm like, oh, this is good. A double gold medalist. Double gold medalist. <laughs> but I had to remember that, you know, I, I felt good in myself. Yeah. You know, I actually yeah. achieved something. I didn't downplay it or criticise or say, oh, I could have done that better. Or why didn't I do a faster start? You know, I actually came away going, I just put myself out there, tried something new and gave it my best shot and one-armed. Yeah. You know, and yeah, I was really happy about that. That was really good. That's good. That's a great start. And bonus with medals. Yeah. That was a great memorabilia. Mm. Definitely. And so was that the only event you did that day or did you get to have a rest before Uh, swimming? No. So each sport's on a different day. Okay. okay. Um, Some of them have two, depending if they don't take as long. Um, But rowing is quite popular. It's it's. It's really good adapting. I think that's why it's popular. So quite a lot of people do it, whether you um, are triple amputee, double amputee, um, you know, you have all your limbs or you've got mental health or anything. You can just, anyone can use the rope machine. That's the perfect part about it. And the atmosphere is like a constant roar. Like we get a good old Team UK chant going and you can tell for guys that have been to previous games because all their family have like saved a big section. They've put flags everywhere and they've got the front row in everything. And yeah, it just really makes you sort of proud to, you're representing your country again. You know, we've all lost that military career and 
well, not everyone you can obviously still do it serving um, if you're injured and that, but yeah, it's just that feeling of pride again that you actually can go out there and just give it your all. So, um, so yeah, I had a good rest the following day and um, I remember waking up going and looking over and seeing the medal boxes and I was like, wow, that really happened. But the adrenaline you get, oh, it's amazing. It's, I now get why sort of professional athletes do it so much. So it's, it's quite addictive, that adrenaline, mm. you know, to sort of really go for it. And, um, and then I think two days later was when the swimming was. So I did, um, I chose to do all the events in the end. I felt pretty good. <laughs> you know, I was sort of on a high on a from high. the rowing. Yeah. And I was like, you know what, let's just do all the events. Um, but as I did each one, I could always choose if I wanted to pull out. You know, I just thought I'd go with the flow because it sounded like a lot of events and I didn't know how much sort of strength I would have by the end of it or if I'd be sick of chlorine smell. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, so the first event was 50 metres freestyle and that it was quite a... I think we had a full pool, a full pool. So we had about... I think it was two heats it was supposed to be two heats and then someone pulled out. So it ended up being a straight final. And for that event, I came second. Did you? got a silver medal. Nice. So well I was done. like, wow. And I went straight. I, fin- and I actually finished it and smiled. And I thought, I've just done a swimming event and not actually moaned that I've missed, you know, none of this Olympic dream. There was no dream. It was just a case of just doing it. And, yeah, I finished it and I thought, oh, I've got a silver medal. This is amazing. But, um, and that's how the rest of the day continued. So I had 50 metres uh, backstroke, second. Nice. 50 metres breaststroke, second. I'm trying to remember now. <laughs> a few years ago. Um, they didn't do butterfly. Okay. That was one stroke that they just don't do. Okay. Um, I don't think that would get anybody interested, to be fair. And then I did um, 100 metres freestyle where I came third. Nice. So I had really good competition, which was great. You know, where rowing, there was only three of us in my category. But for swimming, there was quite a few of us. It was quite um, about six people in each event. So you really had to sort of, it just felt good when you sort of against someone with similar sort of abilities and you can really go for it. And so, yeah, I came out of that day in a much better mood. I can say I've swam for my country, even though I missed out on Team GB and the Olympics, I've actually done what I said I wanted to do as a child. My parents accepted, you know, this is how I'm swimming now. I've completely accepted them on how I believe they felt and they actually do feel, they do support me. And I feel like this massive sort of cloud has now suddenly dispersed and I can actually move on in life. I think that was all I had to do was to get back in the pool create a new memory and just learn how to smile again, just to be happy, stop criticising. And yes, you can still do sport, you know, just because you're injured doesn't mean you can't do it. You know, you've just got to be brave, take that first step and learn that, yes, you're doing it different, but it's it's the right way for you, Mm. you know. And that's my new mental attitude now, you know, just give everything a try. You can always walk away from it which annoyingly is what my mum said when I was younger, <laughs> but she was right, I was wrong. She was right. And, yeah. and, and what a memory you created, you know, sw- swimming in front of, uh, well, your, 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 your parents, but for your country. 
yeah. and and walking away with four medals. I mean that that's 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 amazing in itself. Unbelievable. If I if someone said, you know, this is what's going to happen, I wouldn't believe them at all. It was such a shock. But now I've done it, I feel so much better. You know, I can actually be happy again and enjoy life and not worry if I haven't had a PB or anything because mm. I just don't care about that anymore. It's um, all about these new friendships and you can do sport for fun, yeah, not for competition. And you believe know. in yourself as well, right? Exactly, yeah. yeah. And you don't have to... Just because something's happened in life and, you know, you feel bad or you might feel like a failure. So that was my main thing. It doesn't mean you're going to feel that way forever. You just have to find a way and it might take time. you just got to be patient. Yeah. But when it works, it works. That's good. It's the best feeling in the world, yeah. Amazing, amazing. So, yeah, great, great way to, well, see out your first Invictus and, uh, and, and return from there. And then you obviously had to start your new job and, and, and learn <laughs> yeah. all of that. So there's so much going on. Do you then continue with your sport when you come back to the UK? What does that look like? So I, during the actual um, process before the Games, I made quite a few friends who were in a similar situation and left the military and injured and that. And I found out one of them actually lives locally to me in the next town. And so I came back and we just said, right, let's meet up once a week, twice a week. We'll go for a swim one day and we'll go to the gym the next day. And we said as long as we both go, we'll both keep having fun with it. And that's all we ever did. We probably talked more than we actually swam or were in the gym, but we actually both had, you know, this new friendship and this new understanding of what we've both been through. And she actually went to the Warrior Games where I went to Invictus in the same year. Oh, nice. So we actually swapped kit <laughs> and uh, we had a good time about it so yeah I came back with um, new Lisa life let's enjoy this job and yeah I just did exercise for the fun of it not because I had to you know so yeah that's cool new me new you yeah and so did you get enticed to apply for a, a future games after Sydney at the time, um, they were starting to advertise. They said, yep, yeah, the next Invictus Games will be 2020 in uh, The Hague, Netherlands. And I was like, do I or don't I? I thought I've had such an amazing experience. I could do it again, but I don't want to deny someone else off that you know, position or whatever. And again, I thought, you know what, I'm going to go to that try it day, but this time I'm going to go as an an ex-competitor, you know, been to a previous games, I can offer out advice and help out the staff or whatever they need. And more just a chat, just to meet up with everybody again. So um, some of the team all decided, yep, we'll all go to the same one so we can all see each other. And little did I know I was helping kids on row machines and telling them how, you know, this is how I row, how would you row? Show me. And I kind of had that sort of lease of like, do I, don't I, I don't know. But I'll keep thinking about it. And I bumped into my rowing coach there, who was my rowing coach for Sydney. And um, she was like, well, did you get everything that you needed out of it? And I was like, well, I did. But the one thing that I still believe I want to work on is confidence. I always, um, I came back as if, yeah, I'm absolutely fine, you know, um, move on in life when actually 
I still found it hard to go to places without a friend, without a buddy or meeting in a car park first to just to walk in. But once I'm in, I'm absolutely fine. It's just those first few baby steps. And they were like, well, why didn't you apply again then? You know, try and use this time round as confidence and offer advice to anybody that's newly applied. So I was like, well, actually, that does sound like a great idea. But again, I don't want to take a position that someone else might need more than me. And they were like, you're not. You, this is, you've got to think about your recovery, not their recovery. If they, you know, want to apply, they can apply, you know. And I was like, actually, let's... She had logic reasoning, you know, and I was like, yeah, you are right. I'm just trying to talk myself out of it almost because I don't want to feel guilty of taking someone else's spot. And so I applied for the 2020 Games and did the same process, went to the training camps and then it came to application time. And this time was slightly different. Okay. So on the application it said... um what you're applying for, why do you want to do this and all of that. And I said, you know, I want to build my confidence and um, be able to sort of walk into a building on my own and actually say, you know, I can do this. And there was also a section saying, do you want to be vice captain or captain? And I was like, oh, I've been told to consider it, but I always thought they were just messing about, you know, I never really took it seriously. So we had amazing captain and vice captains for Sydney. They kept us all on our toes and in the right place and the right advice. And it got to a point and I was like, well, actually, if I do get selected and it is a second time, then why not? Why don't I just tick a box? I can always say no. I can always walk away of it and, you know, there's a pattern going on here. And, you know, become this yes person, you know, give it a go. Don't downplay your life. Don't say it's just a niggle and and I just thought why not and so I applied for the games I ticked both boxes vice and captain I thought I'd give myself I don't know every opportunity to do whatever I thought they can make the decision if they think I'm capable or not and um, it again came round to selection time and then I remember getting this email and I was at my sister's house for this one sat on the uh, kitchen worktop and um, we opened up the email and it said, uh, congratulations, you're going to uh, The Hague 2020. You're part of Team UK. And I was like, I've done it again. Nice. I'm, I'm going again. Holy moly. You know, this is, <laughs> this is crazy. And the only extra part I got on this one was um, we have also invited you for an interview to be considered for captain or vice captain. And I was like, an interview? What? I mean, I realised I ticked a box and that changes a lot of stuff. So I then got told I had to go for this interview to be considered for both roles because that's what I put down for. And, um, and I was just like, what do I say? What do I do? Never captained anything in my life. I was just a, a little SAC, you know, just putting plasters on people's boo-boos. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, and yeah, I remember going for this interview and annoyingly enough, I had an issue with my car the day before and it was completely broken down, couldn't drive it. So I had to um, get my dad to cancel a meeting of his to chauffeur me to London for a 20 minute interview <laughs> and then bring me all the way back whilst I was crying my eyes out because my car was broken and it was going to be a big bill. And um, But he's a good distraction, my dad, so he always, you know, there's always a 
joke or a dodgy radio channel that he has to have on in his car. And, um, yeah, I remember turning up for this interview and they said, oh, you don't need to prepare, you know, just walk in, be yourself. And I was like, that's even harder. How are you supposed to be yourself? And I walked into this room and I realised my rowing coach is now the new boss of the team. Great, I know her, she knows me. And the Sydney captain was also in the room and the head of the friends and family part where I took my parents, was in the room, as well as um, another delegation member. And I was like, I know these people. This makes it a whole lot even harder, because I can't even... Not that I'll play on anything or lie, but they know who I am. So I didn't know whether that helped or hindered. And um, as all interviews, I luckily didn't make any jokes about cups of tea and adminers. <laughs> but um, I just said... I was just thought, just be open and honest and see where it goes. And I remember saying that I've never led anything in my life, you know, led a buffet line, that's about it. But, um, you know, I said, I've got the experience, I've got that medic mindset where I can, you know, have that caring atmosphere and help others to build on themselves and at the same time um, work on my confidence by actually approaching more people and getting out there more. And... And, yeah, and it seemed to go okay. And I was like, oh, that seemed okay. Sort of trying not to doubt myself or criticise what I was saying. And um, I was trying to see who else was going in for interview because they did it at such a time that you didn't really cross each other. But you sort of catch eyes in car parks and you're like, oh, you're in a suit and you're at Tedworth House. That doesn't really happen. <laughs> you must be here for an interview. And, uh, and yeah, look, I, I knew a few of the guys from the Sydney team that also applied. And um, and a couple of new ones as well who were new to Invictus Games. And, yeah, it was probably about an, an hour driving, hour into the drive home, I get a phone call. And I'm like, Dad, I think this is it. But it can't be this soon. They must be saying, you know, no to all the guys now and then everyone else will get told later or something. You know, it was, it was just too quick for a decision. And... Yeah, I got a phone call from the um, chef de mission, who was my rowing coach for Sydney, saying, um, Rach, we want to offer you the position of captain. And I was like, you're joking. Are you absolutely sure you want me? And they're like, well, if you don't want it. Yeah. And I was like, of course I want it. I ticked the box, you know. Um, and yeah, and just like that, they said I'm the first female captain for Team UK that they've had in the four games that there's been. And, yeah, you're not only going to The Hague, you're leading the whole entire team of 65 out there. Amazing. I was just like, wow. I was I was so in shock. that, that I, actually, I just generally thought that I'll just go along, see how it goes. But little did I know that I would actually be in that position. And I, all like my dad kept saying was, they obviously see something in you. Yeah. That you don't see yet. Absolutely. But it's gonna you're gonna build on it. Yeah, yeah. But this would definitely help build your confidence, right? Definitely. First female team captain yeah. of Team UK for the Invictus Games. Yeah. It's amazing when you say it, right? Oh, it's crazy. <laughs> I, I believe it now because it's um unfortunately with COVID it's been delayed a few times. But um but yeah, to actually like we had the announcement day, so we had to keep all of this a secret and we were under embargo for quite a while, a good month or so. 
And it was the hardest secret ever. Like, you can tell your close family, so obviously my parents knew. But I was just like, I just want to shout it out. I want to say, look, this is where I've got to. You could be the next one, you know, let's gear each other up for it. And, yeah, you get to the announcement day in London. And that's when I thought, oh, I'm going to be the one front and centre in front of all these people with the world press in front of us. I hope you're good at interviews. <laughs> so I, was, I had to prepare speeches. Mm. I've never written a speech before. I had to get two ready. One for um, when we met with uh, Super, Super Dry, because they were one of our sponsors. Yeah. And, um, and then again at the after dinner um, in front of like a couple hundred people, all in like the circle tables that like, you get at a wedding for like 10 people on each. And I was like... I hope they have a microphone on a stand because I can't hold a speech and a microphone. <laughs> and it's always True. little little yeah. things that I kept going, oh, oh, did I say this? Have I mentioned this? Forgetting that they, of course, they know that I'm one-armed and, of course, they've prepped it all and sorted it all out and I haven't had to ask for my food to be chopped up. They've just done it all because they know me better than I know me. And, yeah, next minute I was on a stand after one of the MPs spoke doing a speech to a few hundred people that I've never done in my life, talking about, you know, how we're going to get this amazing team successful at the Games and everyone, you know, achieving their goals. After that speech, did your confidence grow? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I was like, if I've done this, I can do any speech. But uh, it's still nervous every time. Of course, and yeah. And you have to try and remember why you're doing it and who it's for and your, your um, sort of audience. But, um, but yeah, I thought... Yeah, that's kind of done it. <laughs> and we've not even got to the games yet. No. So uh, originally they were supposed to be in May 2020. And we did all the training up until April. Uh, probably about, no, March, sorry. And that was obviously when COVID hit. So we had to stop training in March. And we were about to, we literally did our last training sessions. We were prepared. We knew exactly what we we're going to do in our events. And yeah, we get told... We can no longer train together, hold, wait out for information. And then the pandemic happened. And so the games were cancelled and we didn't know whether that was going to be cancelled for good, whether we've done all that prep for nothing, not for nothing, but, you know, for no games at the end, when realising that actually we've all improved so much just by having the training. You don't need the games. That's just like the cherry on the top. And... Yeah, and we're just in this sort of limbo mode. And then next minute, during um, like between lockdown one and two, I think we get told it's been postponed. So it's still going ahead. We were like, thank goodness for that. You know, we really want to finish off what we started. And it was going to be um, May 21. And I was like, great, you know, we've got a year. I can finally get on a diet that I've been trying to do for the last so many years. And... Um, and, oh, no, lockdown three. But the game's cancelled. No longer going. I was like, oh, no, this has happened again. What on earth do I tell the team? What do I, how do I keep their motivation going? You just, you just have to learn that you, you need to rest and recover as much as everyone else does. Just have time for yourself. And that's all we've done as a team lately. It's just, you know, we had our own little training sessions. We're back on training now. But it gets to a point where you just need to stop everything and just let your bodies and your mind recover. So it's such a whirlwind of a journey. You need that time with your family. 
because training does take over your life at times. And then we get told, oh, the games, they're back on again, third time lucky. And now um, it's looking really good this time. So it's going to be April 2022, but it's still going to be the 2020 games. And if you're um, like me and decide to get a tattoo and you put 2020 on it, it's a, yeah, bit of a funny joke at the moment. (laughs) So I've got, so my first ever tattoo when I went to Sydney, I said, oh, I'm going to get the Invictus tattoo. Everyone does it. It's like having Olympic rings, but in Invictus form. And I thought, well, this is my Olympics. Let's get a tattoo. And yeah, I've never had a tattoo before. My dad is kind of against them. He was like, what are you doing to your body? I was like, but if I went to the Olympics, I'll have the rings. At least it means something. And he was fine. And then, yeah, I decided to get the Hague added with a little C for captain. And now the running joke is 2020, COVID happened. And so now the C stands for COVID in 2020. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And, yeah, at first I was going to change it to uh, O-N-E with the last zero to make 2021. Okay. But now 2022 makes it a little bit more difficult. So yeah. I might just leave it as it is and it will just have to be a one of those things. One of those things. Yeah. I'm sure you can come up with something. Maybe put the one there and then cross both make of those out. And, yeah, <laughs> literally make a list. Or put an asterisk and put it somewhere else. <laughs> that's a good That's a good chat. That's but, a good uh, chat. Yeah, I, I, I think it's funny, but um, I like it. Like The only reason I wanted this tattoo is um, just to remind myself what I've achieved and don't forget what you've done in life. Yeah. And if you have a bad day, just have a look and go, ah, oh, I am invincible. I am unconquered, you know, and I can do it. Yeah. You just got to get past this bad phase and you'll get there. Would it be all right to take a picture of that later? Yeah, So sure. we can put it on the video so people can see it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's, uh, and any suggestions. And any suggestions, yeah, yeah. of how to, I might, I don't know, I might do a bit of embellishment, maybe a background flag, I don't know. Don't know. We'll see. We'll get your see. markers out. <laughs> but at the time that this episode, your episode goes live, it's... Uh, Six months out, right, from yep. the games. So hopefully um, it will be shortly after we should be starting to train together as a team. We're looking at November time, um, repeating exactly what we did in 2019. So it'd be November to probably Feb, March time training and then a bit of recovery before getting ready for April games. That'd be great. So they're a month earlier this time, but um, but still going ahead. So that's still the main part, you know, we still get to finish what we started. Yeah. And if we can conquer our injuries, our illnesses, our mental, physical health and COVID, I think we can smash the rest of our lives. Exactly. And just, you know, keep doing the best we can. Yeah. And no doubt your confidence will grow and therefore Definitely. The, the aim of these games will, will be there and will be conquered. So Definitely. I wouldn't <laughs> have even done this interview if it was Sydney time. I would have just said, no, sorry, I'm... Not talking. Is that, is that is that true? Is that yeah yeah. yeah. On, okay. I did no talking, no storytelling or interviews or anything until I went to Sydney, and obviously what the media do like is yes you have medals, and so I was sort of put into a situation where like you don't have to, but it would be good, and I was like why not? Let's have a moment where I don't moan about myself and someone actually praises me and I'm happy about it. And that's how I actually accepted talking about my story and I'm more open to it. And, yeah, the memories still come back, but now I see the positive sides. And, you know, just because I'm left-handed now, yes, I can't do left-handed jokes anymore, 
or make fun of any lefties because I am one. Yeah. But um, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's just one of those where that's what helps and this open, opens me up every time I do it. So, yeah. Well, thanks very much for coming on the show for sure. Um, and also good luck to you and the team Team UK, of course. Uh, the others, yeah, we wish you luck. But <laughs> obviously, we're going to be rooting for Team UK um, at at The Hague uh, in 2022. So, lastly, uh, your injury. How how's that going? Is it kind of stable now? Um, so it's still slowly got worse over time. So it's sort of going up to the shoulder. So you could probably see that that was a bit further forward, and I it's sort of the whole arm now. So I tend to have it on my lap quite a lot just to take the weight off my arm. I can, if I do move it, it will tremor. Okay. So I just don't move it. Okay. <laughs> but um, it's got to a point where the team that I see, they have said it's a neurological disorder. There's nothing I can do about it. We've tried every specialist neurophysio treatment that works, inpatient, outpatient, and nothing has got it still... Um, progressed over time and got worse. So I've just, I'm at that point where I did ask for amputation, but they said potentially that wouldn't work because it being nerve related injury, it could affect my left arm. Okay. And so they don't want to risk me being no armed than with one arm and a one arm that's on me, but I just don't have any physical use of it. Okay. Okay. So um, yeah, at the moment there's, I can't really do much with the right arm apart from just it just hangs there. And, um, and yeah, it's painful all the time, but, you know, right meds and the right attitude gets you a long way. And just case of cracking on my life now, you yeah. know. I know there's, there's nothing that will get it better anymore. We've tried it all, and I think that helps, you know. But it's just a case of um, enjoying. I'm still in my job now. Still, I've worked there. It'll be... Three years in August, but I've worked at Stamford Hall and still love it, still enjoy it, still do sport for fun without criticising and I've accepted I'm one-armed. So I'm very happy at the moment, yeah. Good stuff, good stuff. Um, well, I feel we've come to the end of the podcast and uh, you've shared so many, so many great things. Um, but I'm going to give you the opportunity to... Um, share some advice maybe for people that are, are contemplating joining the military sure. and, and obviously your experience within the RAF. Uh, do you have any advice for those people thinking of joining? Uh, yes. So if you do have, even if you have that thought, that means that you are looking into it. You know, you've, you've probably decided what service may be or you're not quite sure on what job. But the attitude I had, which I think worked, was give it a go. You can always leave. You know, just because you're signing a contract doesn't mean you have to play it out. You know, you can say, I want to leave. And give it a go. You know, it doesn't matter what your background is, your um, income, your family, you know, whether you've had a good upbringing, bad upbringing, it, it really caters for absolutely everyone. And I loved it. It definitely built me as an adult and it can really help you to grow up and enjoy life and have this new um sort of military family and yeah, yeah i'd say if you even if you think about it why not what's stopping you from doing it you know it's have that attitude give it a go and see where it takes you yeah great advice 
and also for veterans, so people that have maybe been out for a while or even people that are about to leave the military? Any advice for them? I would say, um, yes, it might feel like your world is crushing down on you and you feel useless and hopeless and you've let people down in your life. But just remember that every small thing in life goes a long way. So the fact that you've woken up today, you've made your bed, you've brushed your teeth, you've done your hair, you've had a shave, you know, all of those are goals. Just because you maybe have lost your career or you don't have it or you can't work again, just try and think of all the small things in life and that will slowly build you there. You know, it just takes time. And yes, asking for help can feel like it's really hard to do or you don't want or you simply don't want to ask for help but you want you but you know you want that help yourself even if you just try and find a hobby it doesn't have to be sport like I did it could be absolutely anything and through that hobby you'll make a new friend and through that new friend you'll have extra support that maybe isn't within your four walls at home and it just might take your mind off your current situation and just try and Think of all the positive things in every small goal of every day. Excellent advice. Very good. Surprised myself. eh? (laughs) (laughs) I need to listen to my own advice sometimes, but uh, but yeah, give it a go. That's all you can do and Mm. try it. If it doesn't work out, you don't like it, don't do it. Try something else. Yeah. Nothing's stopping you except you. So just try and be brave. Take that little nudge forward. See where it opens. Maybe you could listen back to this uh, this episode later. <laughs> Be my ringtone. <laughs> you can do it. <laughs> well, this has been great. Um, we we have come to the end, but how was it for you? Was it was it as you expected? Better. Better. Definitely. Oh, good. I didn't expect you know my room to be in such an awesome technological room. <laughs> no, it's great. You've um, you know you put me at ease. I've opened up. I'm happy, I'm smiling. Great. And it was great to be part of. So thank you for allowing me to be part of this. Not a problem at all. And and I just want to thank you. So thank you for sharing everything you have and and, and also giving up some of your time. We don't have infinite amount of it, right? So <laughs> I, I just thank you for giving up some of that time for today. Thank you. And lastly, as I do say to all of my guests, thank you for your service. Thank you. People don't know how to respond to that from the British. Well, I'm like, oh, well, I like it, but you know, you just think that is nice. You know, you don't you don't hear it enough. No, I think no. that's it. So. And it. I think it definitely does its purpose. So definitely, it's a, it's a good way to to end such a great episode. So thank you once more, Rach. This has been Military Veterans Podcast. Out. Hi, this is Gav. Thanks so much for listening to the end of this episode and uh, I hope you've enjoyed it. But uh, I would love to just give you the insight into being able to support the show through uh, Patreon. Uh, You can go to patreon.com forward slash military veterans podcast or you can follow the links on the website or even social media. And this way you can support monthly. Uh, There are a few tiers you can choose 
Uh, they start at £3 a month and they go up. If you were to support with £5 a month, you actually get a behind-the-scenes kind of recording, which is once the episode has been recorded with me and the veteran, then uh, we do a little bit of a chin wag, and uh, that's actually that's actually quite fun. So it'd be awesome if you could maybe have a listen to some of those uh, just by supporting uh, with £5 a month. But either way, uh, please uh, share the show with, with a friend or someone you know that might enjoy it. Uh, and also remember, there is the video part as well, which is over on YouTube. So thanks very much for anything that you've done with supporting or listening, and uh, take care. Bye-bye.